The United States takes its turn heading the U.N. Security Council at a time when the international community is struggling to revive a grain deal with Russia in Ukraine and agree on a security force for Haiti, which is now being led by gangs. Today is Tuesday, the 1st of August. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, truckers who worked for Yellow Freight for years have suddenly found themselves jobless after the company shut down, and some of them are furious. We have a contract. We did not violate it. We upheld our end of the contract. They negotiated that contract. They agreed to it. The shutdown has eliminated nearly 30,000 union jobs, and the online discount retailer Overstock.com has become Bed Bath & Beyond after buying the bankrupt home goods brand. But don't expect brick-and-mortar stores to reopen or those big blue coupons in the mail. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Former President Donald Trump's facing the possibility of a third federal indictment. A grand jury reconvened today in Washington, D.C. about its investigation into the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol in 2021 and attempts to overturn Trump's election loss months earlier. Members of the grand jury were seen leaving the courthouse this afternoon, fueling speculation of an announcement at any moment. Two weeks ago, Trump announced he was a target in the federal probe being led by special counsel Jack Smith. As NPR's Frank Ordonez reports, Trump has used the indictments to claim the system against him is rigged, and so far he remains the front runner for the GOP presidential nomination. In March, several weeks before the first indictment, Trump had just 43 percent of the vote in Republican polling. But a day after he was charged in a hush money scheme to an adult film actress, the numbers had already jumped to 50 percent. Two months later, he was indicted for mishandling classified documents. His polling average jumped again, and they're back up now. NPR's Frank Ordonez reporting Trump was also indicted in Florida and New York. He's also facing charges in Georgia over efforts to overturn the state's results of the 2020 presidential election. Family members of Henrietta Lacks have reached a settlement with a company they say used cells taken from her body to develop products that were later sold for a profit. Here's NPR's Joe Hernandez. Henrietta Lacks was being treated for cervical cancer at Johns Hopkins University in 1951 when a doctor removed cells from her tumor without her consent. Those cells had the ability to be endlessly reproduced and have been used by researchers in the decades since to create things like the vaccines for polio and COVID-19. Now her family has settled a lawsuit against the Massachusetts-based firm Thermo Fisher Scientific, which used Lax's cells to create some of its products. Alfred Lax Carter Jr., one of Lax's grandsons, spoke at a press conference. It couldn't have been a more fitting day for her to have justice, yeah. for her family to have relief. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's announced a new bureau that will focus on current and future global health threats. Here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Secretary Blinken says the U.S. government has to be ready for the next health emergency. That is a central mission of the new bureau, uh, to leverage the full power and purpose of American diplomacy, to bring the world together, to prevent, and if that doesn't work, to prepare for and respond to the next health disaster. 
He's tapped the global AIDS coordinator, John Nkengason, to lead the new bureau. The Cameroon-born virologist has had a long career in public health and warns that the frequency of health threats are increasing because of globalization, climate change, population growth, and food insecurity. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The Dow closes up 70 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. MBTA General Manager Philip Eng says the T's infrastructure problems run deeper than he thought when he first took over the agency. WBR's Rob Lane has more. Eng's been on the job about four months. He says since he took over, the T's had a better handle on subway track conditions and work crews are making progress on getting rid of slow zones. He tells WBUR's Radio Boston he came to Boston with the knowledge that he'd have his work cut out for him. I think the fact, though, that there was years and years of disinvestment I think the work is more widespread across the system, but that doesn't mean we don't have a plan going forward. Before joining the MBTA, Eng worked at Transit Systems in New York and in the private sector. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. Boston's Election Commission has ruled that City Councilor Kendra Lara does indeed live in the district she represents. Commissioners met today over a residency challenge filed against Lara earlier this summer. Challengers had argued that she did not live in Jamaica Plain, as she claimed. Separately, she faces charges related to a car crash in June. Beyonce struts her stuff at Gillette Stadium tonight as part of her Renaissance World Tour. Regional Chamber of Commerce Director Kara Griffin says hotel and retail businesses in the Foxborough area should reap the rewards. Some of the high-end hotels were definitely booked up early. You know, the restaurants are doing a lot of great promotions up at Patriot Place. Beyonce fans are also getting ready for the show. Drag performer Neon Calypso has hosted several Beyonce-themed brunches in Boston. She's a big fan of Beyonce's Renaissance album. It's like energizing. No one is like sort of aggressive towards you. It's like engaging. You want to like dance. I think that's what this album feels for everybody. So you you listen to it and you go straight to the album. And at the end of it, you're like, wow, okay, I need to listen to this again. It just made me feel so good about myself. Calypso says Beyonce's Renaissance album is bringing together the local queer community. The tallest mountain in New England is known for its extreme weather. And now New Hampshire's Mount Washington has a new record. Meteorologists say a record 17.08 inches of rain fell on the mountain last month. The old record of just below 16.6 inches of rain was set in July 1996. 77 degrees in the Boston area. Look for clouds to roll in over the next several hours, and then we should end up with clearing skies tonight. May need a blanket. Should be in the upper 50s. Tomorrow, lots of sunshine again. Still breezy, still coolish and comfortable. Temperatures in the mid to upper 70s. This is WBUR. It's 4.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. New York City has been made and remade by immigrants. But within the last year, New York has counted over 90,000 arrivals. And the city says its shelters are now all at capacity. We'll have a report from Manhattan coming up. But first, to Indiana, where a near-total ban on abortion was scheduled to take effect today. But a last-minute legal request from abortion providers 
and the ACLU asking the Indiana Supreme Court to rehear a previous challenge has put that ban on hold for now. Indiana Public Broadcasting's Brandon Smith joins us now to talk about the uncertainties surrounding this latest battle over abortion. Hi, Brandon. Good to be here. Good to have you. Okay, so this law, I mean, it's considered one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country, right, if it goes into effect. What do those restrictions cover exactly? Right. Well, under the law, more than 90 percent, 90 percent of the abortions that are traditionally performed in Indiana every year would now be banned because the only exceptions allowed by the law are if the pregnant person's serious health or life is at risk, if there's a lethal fetal anomaly, but then that only goes up to about 22 weeks of pregnancy. And abortions would still be allowed in cases of rape or incest, but only up to about 12 weeks of pregnancy. So again, 90 plus percent of abortions that have traditionally been done in Indiana would be banned under this law. Okay. And I understand the Indiana legislature passed these restrictions, what, nearly a year ago? Was that part of the plan to delay for a year or almost a year? <laughs> No, no, it absolutely was not. The restrictions, which were the, Indiana was the first state post the Dobbs decision to to convene and, and pass new restrictions. But those restrictions were originally set to take effect mid-September of 2022. Huh. But there was legal action pretty much right away yeah. after the law was signed by the governor. And to be fair, I think lawmakers were expecting a lawsuit. But that legal process has been playing out over the last year. And it finally came to a head, at least in this initial lawsuit, a month ago, at the end of June, when the Indiana Supreme Court issued uh, its final decision, saying that the state constitution and its guarantee of liberty does not cover abortion rights with just two exceptions. It did say that the state constitution only guarantees abortion rights in cases where the pregnant person's life or serious health is at risk. So the court upheld basically the entire law as the General Assembly passed it. Mm -hmm. And now we've been waiting for the last month for that ruling to finally take effect. Okay. And today was supposed to be the day it would take effect. But how does this last minute petition complicate matters at this point? Uh, Quite considerably. That 30-day window where we were waiting for for the ruling to take effect is to allow the parties who didn't win, so in this case it was the ACLU representing abortion care providers, Mm -hmm. the clinics around the state, who do the vast majority of abortions in Indiana. It allows that group to ask the court to reconsider the case. It's called a petition for rehearing. They did that at almost the last minute on the last day possible. They filed that petition at 3.47 p.m. yesterday. And so now we're waiting at least for the Indiana Supreme Court to weigh in on this petition. They can grant it. They can deny it. The attorney general's office might need to weigh in with a reply. So until all of that happens, until the Supreme Court says, yes, we will grant this petition or no, we won't, the ban cannot take effect. And so there's a, there's really a real uncertainty about yeah. the timing of when that might happen. And this uncertainty could spread and affect people outside Indiana, right? Like there have been people traveling to Indiana from surrounding states where there are already bans in place. What is the impact of Indiana's uncertainty to those people? Well, leading up to today, I think one of the biggest ways we saw the uncertainty was in that the abortion clinics who were still providing abortion care while it was legal, they were booked with appointments a month out up until August 1st, up until today. And then today itself, I think we've seen a real impact in that Planned Parenthood, one of the state's primary abortion care providers, said today that it simply cannot any longer provide abortions, even though the law, that ban, hasn't taken effect. 
Re uh, Rebecca Gibran is the regional CEO of Planned Parenthood, and she explained today why they made that decision. It's not patient-centered care to try to have patients navigate through this chaos and turbulence uh, at the whims of extreme lawmakers. So, Brandon, what do we know about what happens next now? Unfortunately, not a lot. This is we're now in the hands of the legal process, which doesn't move quickly in the best of times. Um, the Supreme Court at some point will either grant or deny that petition, but mm -hmm. they don't have a clock on them. They don't have to do it within a certain amount of time. Okay. And unfortunately, there's just no way to know exactly how much time it will take. Brandon Smith is the State House Bureau Chief for Indiana Public Broadcasting. Thank you, Brandon. You're very welcome. Since last spring, New York has received more than 90,000 migrants and asylum seekers, and it's now at capacity, city officials say. Meanwhile, dozens of new arrivals are camping out on the streets of Manhattan, and Pierre's Jasmine Garst reports. It's another scorching afternoon in New York City. Jose Luis has been sitting on the sidewalk for four days now, stuck in a line that wraps around the block. No avanza nada la fila. The line isn't moving, he says. The staff comes out and is very rude. They tell us, wait, wait, but no solutions are offered. Jose Luis asked that his last name be withheld. His family is still in Ecuador. He says he fled drug cartel violence. It took him months to get here. Now he's just sitting outside the Roosevelt Hotel indefinitely. This is where people are processed before they're sent to other shelters throughout the city. But those shelters say they're now at capacity. We've always been, a, I mean, a state that politically have always aligned ourselves with a welcoming attitude. Robert Robison was out on his lunch break when he stumbled upon the scene. He says he's worked in Manhattan for years and never seen anything like this. To see this here just makes, like, not a lot of sense to me. New York Mayor Eric Adams says no one should be surprised. He's been warning of this for months. Our cup has basically runneth over. We have no more room in the city. The Biden administration has offered to send a liaison to New York. Adams says that's not enough. He and Governor Kathy Hochul are urging the government to expedite work permits. That would allow asylum seekers to get out of the shelter system quicker. We've been very clear uh, that uh, we need to allow asylum seekers to work. We need uh, the economic support on the federal government. And we need to ensure that there's a real decompression strategy throughout the entire country. In the meantime, City Hall says single people can now only spend two months in a shelter. And in an unusual move, the city will be handing out flyers at the border, urging people not to come to New York. When Jan Franco, a Venezuelan migrant, got to the border around two weeks ago, he wasn't told any of this. He turned himself over at the Arizona border a few weeks ago. He was bused to Colorado, then Manhattan. He arrived on this morning. He says he was surprised to see all the people sleeping on the streets. The city has said it's prioritizing children and families, and it has announced it will soon open two new shelters in Queens. In the long line outside the Roosevelt Hotel in Manhattan, people try to sleep. One man prays. Others stare listlessly into space. A Venezuelan migrant named Jose Gregorio shrugs his shoulders, resigned. We came from so far. It took us so long. We can wait out here for a bit longer. Just how long is anyone's guess? Jasmine Garst, NPR News, 
New York. The U.S. has taken over the rotating presidency of the United Nations Security Council, and it's planning to focus on food security as well as Russia's invasion of Ukraine. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will be chairing a Security Council meeting on food security this Thursday. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield says in a world abundant with food, no one should ever starve to death. We know food security is national security. And we know without a shadow of a doubt, it is within our power to feed the world and end famine. But she says conflict fuels famine. And she singled out Russian President Vladimir Putin, who has waged war against Ukraine and recently pulled out of a deal that allowed Ukraine to get its grain to world markets via the Black Sea. Russia has launched a full-scale assault on the world's breadbasket. And it is dead set on depriving the world of Ukraine's grains. The U.N. Security Council has been the scene of many debates about Ukraine, but the council can't do much since Russia is a permanent member and has veto power. Russia's deputy ambassador, Dmitry Polyansky, rejected the U.S. program for the month, in part, he said, because of the many meetings on Syria, an ally of Russia. But the most important stumbling block uh, was uh, the desire Uh, I would say even the obsession of American incoming presidency to put formally in this program of work a meeting on Ukraine. He says Russia doesn't shy away from debates about Ukraine, but Moscow wants to focus on different aspects of the war, such as Western arms shipments. Ambassador Thomas Greenfield says she's pressing ahead with her schedule for the month. It's a little stunt that the, the Russians have a pull. But it will not interfere, it will not stop us from carrying out our responsibilities in the council. One place where she thinks the council can get something done is Haiti. For nearly a year, the U.N. Secretary General has been urging the council to approve an international force to help restore order in Haiti, where gangs control much of the capital. Kenya is now considering leading such a force, and the U.S. is hoping the Security Council will endorse one in the coming weeks. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Be sure to listen to Morning Edition tomorrow to hear Afrobeats artist Rema. When he was joined by pop star Selena Gomez on the song Calm Down, it became a worldwide hit. I've done a lot of remixes that has never come out. But this one, when I heard it, I was like, yeah, this is it. I feel like it's going to touch the world differently. To hear more from the Nigerian singer, turn on your radio tomorrow morning or ask your smart speaker to play your member station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR, some Latinos in Colorado say one barrier to enjoying outdoor recreation is the lack of maps and signage in Spanish. An organization near Aspen is trying to fix that. That story is still ahead. The Dow grew by two-tenths of a percent for this first day in August. S&P and NASDAQ both lost ground. S&P fell by about a quarter of a percent. The NASDAQ lost under a half percent. State Attorney General Andrea Campbell has reached a $2.5 million settlement with the Lemonster Ambulance Company. Campbell alleged the company, MedStar, submitted false claims to MassHealth for emergency trips when only less expensive non-emergency trips were provided. In addition to paying back the money, the company will implement company-wide training and update its policies on mass health medical necessity requirements. It's 419.
Funding for WBUR's Business Report comes from Bionova Scientific, a biologics CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services to small and mid-sized biopharmaceutical companies. BionovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. Game two for the Red Sox and Mariners tonight in Seattle. Brian Bayo gets the nod for Boston. Bryce Miller for Seattle. 9.40 start time once again. A beautiful day today. Could have some clouds around this evening. And for the first part of tonight, then they should head on out and leave clear skies for gazing at the big supermoon tonight. A bit cool overnight, about 58 degrees. And then for tomorrow, beautiful again. Sunny, breezy, still in the 70s. 77 degrees in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Let's say someone in your family has had cancer. How would you know if it's the hereditary kind, which could put other family members at an increased risk? The answer is genetic testing. But as NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports, lots of people who should be offered it never hear about it. A few years ago, Junius Nottingham was on a family vacation in Florida. His wife was there, his daughter, and his son Jeremy. Jeremy was 28 years old, over six feet tall, athletic, handsome. He had followed his dad into law enforcement and was working for the Secret Service. And Jeremy told my wife that when he has a bowel movement, he he bleeds a lot. So my wife said, well, it's probably hemorrhoids. When you go back to Birmingham, Alabama, go see your doctor. His son did, and his parents were blindsided by what happened next. We get a call the day after Jeremy went back saying that Jeremy had stage four colon cancer. And my wife and I are looking at each other like, what? What's going on? The next day, they learned the colon cancer had spread to Jeremy's liver. So we're like, oh my gosh. And then along with that narrative, we're all told that we have to go get tested for something called Lynch syndrome. I had never heard of Lynch syndrome in my life. Lynch syndrome is an inherited genetic condition. It gives you up to an 80% chance of developing colorectal cancer, plus an increased risk of cancer in other organs. No one had ever warned Junius Nottingham about hereditary cancer, even though his mom and his grandmother both died of ovarian cancer. He and his wife went to get tested. And within a week, you know, it comes back that I have the gene. Wow. My son has Lynch syndrome, and I gave it to him. That's a tough pill to swallow. The realization that he also was at significant risk made his doctor insist that he get a colonoscopy. Nottingham remembers the fog of coming out of anesthesia. I'm trying to wake up, and Dr. Brown's like, you have cancer. You have to have surgery. I'm like, this is a bad dream. And then I go outside, and I tell my wife, And then our world turns upside down again. 
Cancer is the second leading cause of death in the United States. Experts believe that about 10% of it comes from inherited genetic mutations. Lisa Schlager is with a group called FORCE, or Facing Our Risk of Cancer Empowered. She says while a couple of genes associated with breast cancer, BRCA1 and 2, have gotten a lot of attention. There are many, many other mutations that cause increased risk of cancers. The genetic cancer syndrome in Nottingham's family, Lynch syndrome, is actually more common than BRCA mutations. It affects one in 300 Americans. Now, genetic testing for hereditary cancer risk used to be expensive. But these days, the testing is way cheaper, often just an insurance copay or a couple hundred bucks. And a single test can simultaneously check dozens of genes related to cancer of the ovaries, brain, skin, kidney, pancreas, prostate. Most people that should be getting the test are not. Tua Pal is a clinical geneticist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. She says even for the two well-known breast cancer-related genes... We're now approaching, what is it, three decades <laughs> since the discovery of those genes. And we still have only identified a fraction of the adult U.S. population that's at risk. Allison Curian agrees. She's a cancer physician at Stanford University. There have been studies that have sort of looked at the significant cancer mutations and have estimated that maybe 5% of people in the U.S. are walking around with one. That's millions of people, most of whom are not aware that they have a genetic predisposition. Those who do find out often learn of it like Junius Nottingham did. A relative is diagnosed with cancer, gets tested, then tells the family. The trouble is, the vast majority of cancer patients never get tested. Curian and some colleagues just did a recent study looking at over a million people diagnosed with cancer in Georgia and California. 93% did not get genetically tested. Kurian says it's almost hard for her to believe. Because we did the study, I know that the data are accurate. I think it's just that, unfortunately, there's dramatic under-testing going on. If doctors were following the latest expert guidelines, they'd offer testing to everyone with ovarian, pancreatic, or metastatic prostate cancer and consider offering it to everyone with colon or breast cancer. But Curian's study found less than half of ovarian cancer patients actually got the testing. People with other cancers were even less likely to get it. We found much higher testing rates for breast and ovarian than we did for, for example, endometrial and colon. So why are so few people getting testing? One issue seems to be a basic lack of knowledge among doctors about the latest testing technology and science. David Desert has a hereditary mutation in one of the BRCA genes. He's a long-term survivor of pancreatic cancer, and he moderates an online forum for people with this disease. It urges the newly diagnosed to pursue genetic testing. And that is not a problem in the major cancer centers, but most people get treated at a smaller or regional center, and those doctors are not up on this or aware of it. Here's another problem. People may not realize that they have a family history of cancer because past generations often kept cancer secret. Susan Klugman is president of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics. You didn't want to talk about cancer in the family. You didn't even want to mention the C word. So therefore, 
their descendants may not know. Then there's the fact that people, including some doctors, may not appreciate that hereditary cancer syndromes can raise the risk of cancer in multiple organs. Junius Nottingham didn't know that ovarian cancer in female relatives could put him at a higher risk of colon cancer. That's why he now tells people, If there's any history of cancer in your family, any history, go get genetically tested. That testing could even help people who already had cancer in the past. When I spoke to Klugman, she'd just seen a patient who had cancer a couple decades back. It was uterine cancer. That patient now has rectal cancer. If someone who had seen her, even her internist, said, hey, you had uterine cancer at age 49, you should see genetics, you should get testing. We might have caught that rectal cancer a lot sooner. Because someone who knows they're at high risk can take action, like getting a colonoscopy. When Junius Nottingham got one after being tested, his colon cancer was caught early. Surgery removed it. Unfortunately, his son Jeremy's cancer was more advanced and ultimately didn't respond to chemo. After two years of fighting it, he was tired. He would be in excruciating pain, right? And he would look at me. And he was like, Dad, is everything going to be okay? I don't care if he's 30, 50, 60. I'm his father. I'm the problem solver. I'm the one that's supposed to say, yes, it's going to be okay. And I would tell him, Jeremy, yes, it's going to be okay. His son died a year and a half ago. Nottingham is now doing everything he can to raise awareness of hereditary cancer risk, to try to spare others the kind of grief that he feels every day. Nell Greenfield Boyce, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about 10 minutes on All Things Considered. We introduce you to a family that lives on the government side of Yemen while the parents and siblings are on the Houthi side against the government. They haven't seen each other in eight years despite being a close drive away. In the forecast, look for clouds this evening, at least for the first part of the night tonight. They should head on out and then leave clear skies overnight tonight. Temperatures about 58 degrees. Tomorrow, lots of sunshine again. Still breezy, still coolish and comfortable. Temperatures in the mid to upper 70s. Thursday should be another sunny day, a little bit warmer, breaking into the low 80s. 77 degrees now in the Boston area. It's 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top choice colleges. Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling college essays. More at myprompt.com NPR. From Turkey to Chile to Hungary, authoritarian leaders don't come to power on their own. They get there by striking bargains with political and economic elites, religious allies and friendly media who say democracy isn't working and only the leader can restore order. In the U.S., are similar alliances being struck between conservative think tanks, media and Donald Trump? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Former President Donald Trump is expected to be indicted for a third time over his involvement in the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. That could come down any time. Meanwhile, in Georgia, a prosecutor is looking at Trump's attempts to overturn his 2020 presidential loss to Joe Biden in the state. 
From member station WABE in Atlanta, here's Sam Greenglass. We're in this moment that after two years of investigation, all of these investigations, both here and in D.C., seem to be coming to a head. I think people are waiting for answers. I talked to one voter uh, near the backpack event where I talked to D.A. Willis over the weekend who said that it felt like a slap in the face when uh, the former president and his allies tried to overturn the election result here in Georgia. And while this voter was really hopeful that accountability would come as a result of this case, uh, she said she was still doubtful. Sam Greenglass reporting the former president has already been indicted twice and has embraced his legal troubles so far, spending millions in donor campaign funds on his defense. The company, formerly known as Twitter, is suing a nonprofit that researches hate speech on social media. NPR's Shannon Bond says the lawsuit from Elon Musk's X company accuses the group of conducting a scare campaign to drive away advertisers. The lawsuit alleges the Center for Countering Digital Hate violated Twitter's terms of service and federal law by scraping data from the site. It claims the group cherry-picked posts to make it look like Twitter is flooded with hate speech and other harmful content in order to silence users. The group's CEO, Imran Ahmed, says in a statement the suit is an effort by Musk to silence his critics. CCDH and other outside research groups have tracked increasing levels of hate speech on the platform since Musk bought it last fall and loosened rules about what can be posted. The company disputes their findings. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The city of Boston expects to receive more than $22 million in settlements from lawsuits against the manufacturers and distributors of opioids. As WBUR's Deborah Becker reports, Boston officials are asking for input on how to best spend the money. The Boston Public Health Commission is holding listening sessions and conducting an online survey about how to use the settlement monies. The commission's executive director, Dr. Bazola Ojikutu, says the input, especially from those directly affected by the opioid epidemic, will help determine how funds will be spent. I think that they're incredibly helpful for us to understand and for people to feel like they are co-creating what it is that we plan to do as a city in regards to our response to substance use disorder. The survey is available until August 9th. The results will be provided in September. More funds may become available once other opioid settlements are finalized. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Many farmers in the state whose crops were destroyed by recent floods can now apply for federal disaster relief. The Department of Agriculture today designated seven Massachusetts counties as primary natural disaster areas. Farmers in those spots can apply for low-interest loans or apply to refinance their existing loans. The state estimates about 2,000 acres of crops worth at least $15 million were destroyed by excessive rain and flooding between July 9th and 16th. Late last night, state lawmakers also struck a deal that would send an additional $20 million in flood relief to Western Mass. The city of Worcester is using some of its pandemic relief money to help financially struggling families. The city is designating $250,000 for a universal basic income pilot program. Certain households would get between $100 and $500 a month. Mary Beth Campbell is the executive director of the Worcester Community Action Council. It's piloting the program. She says she hopes the program will reduce stress for struggling families. Our vision is to break the cycle of poverty one neighbor at a time. So we think of all the people that we work with as our neighbors because they're, they are. And we try to wake up every day with the mindset that at some point we hope the work that we're doing will help people not need our services any longer. 
In addition to the funds, families will get financial coaching. Former U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton is set to speak in Boston tonight. Clinton will give a keynote address at the awards dinner for the NAACP National Convention, which wraps up today. Clinton will also present the NAACP's Medal for Outstanding Achievement. This year, the award goes to civil rights leader Hazel Nell Dukes. In the forecast, an auspicious start to August after a beautiful day. Should see some clouds collecting tonight, but then leaving a supermoon to brighten the sky. Clear skies for the most part in the upper 50s tonight. Tomorrow and maybe Thursday, sunshine in the upper 70s tomorrow, the low 80s on Thursday. 77 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new season of Silent Witness. Every dead body tells a story in this long-running forensic crime drama starring Amelia Fox. New season streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. For truck drivers, union jobs can be hard to find, and the field is about to get even more crowded. One of the nation's largest trucking companies shut down operations this week, eliminating nearly 30,000 union jobs across the country. Yellow Freight is expected to file for bankruptcy any day now. From member station WPLN in Nashville, Mariana Bacayao reports that the Tennessee-based company has left its drivers without a lot of options. Tracy Cullen drove for Yellow for nearly 40 years. He knows the company lost customers. It's easy to lose freight. It's a lot harder to get it back. Cullen is part of the Teamsters Union, which had threatened to go on strike mid-July after Yellow missed a payment for workers' health benefits. The freight company drew Teamsters back to the negotiating table with an $11 an hour raise over the course of a few years. It's like, okay, that's that's some legit money. But the money never came. Yellow shut down operations this week before it could pay up. We have a contract. The union, my union brothers, we did not violate it. We upheld our end of the contract. That They, they negotiated that contract. They agreed to it. There's things in it I didn't like, but I had to live with it. Things in it they don't like, you live with it. Living with it, for Cullen and all of the other union drivers, now means looking elsewhere for work. Oh, they won't have any problem getting jobs. That's David Owens, president of the National Association of Small Trucking Companies. A good truck driver can get a job anywhere in the country anytime. There's a huge shortage of good people that we need desperately, so yes. But he says another union job will be hard to find. Tennessee, like nearly half of U.S. states, is a right-to-work state, which makes it harder for unions to get members and financial support. Owens says that unions aren't popular among the small trucking company he represents. We've got over 15,000 member companies, and there may be one or two that are union. Owens says the union is what broke yellow, but driver Cullen says the union is what made yellow. We took pay cuts for several years to keep them in business. If it hadn't been for us giving back, this company went out, would have went out of business a long time ago. Yellow has not responded to requests for comment. For NPR News, I'm Mariana Bakayao in Nashville. Now, how the war in Yemen has affected people not by physical injury or violence, but by separation. Thousands of families there are divided, even though they might be just a few miles apart. 
And even as the fighting has decreased, there's no sign that the country will be unified anytime soon. NPR's Fatma Tanis visited one family living on the front line and has this story. The scars of a vicious civil war are all over this frontline neighborhood, where there often is a sniper who shoots at the street. Inside one of the bullet-riddled homes lives a family of six, Araf Abdullah, his wife Bashar Ali, and their four daughters. They used to live on the other side of the front line that divides the city, but the line cut off the father from his job at a fruit market. So they moved here. They drew a line through the city blocking access, and you had to go all the way around through the mountains to get to the other side. It used to take me just 15 minutes to drive to work, and then suddenly it took seven hours. They say they haven't seen their parents and siblings in eight years. It's been like that for many people here since the war erupted. In 2014, the Iran-backed Houthi rebels overthrew the Saudi-backed government. Then, they took control of half of Taiz. The other half, including this neighborhood, is under the control of the pro-government forces. In a close-knit society like Yemen, where family ties play a crucial role in people's lives, the pain of being separated hangs over this family like a dark cloud. Especially now, when Bashar Ali needs help, recovering from an infection after a C-section birth of her fourth daughter two weeks ago. I don't have anyone but my husband. No friends, no family, no one to help. After the infection, I've had to rely on my oldest daughter to do housework and to take care of the children, including the newborn. She's only eight years old. They could go to the other side, but it's difficult. Transportation is expensive. And then there's the different currencies, which makes the money they have here on the government side nearly worthless on the Houthi side. I actually tried once to see my mother, but I never made it. I drove for five hours, but at the first Houthi checkpoint, they interrogated me and accused me of being a terrorist and said they would watch me wherever I went. I gave up and went back home. He was afraid of being arrested, like others he's heard about, and leaving his wife and children with no protection and no source of income. Life is difficult for Yemenis on both sides. There's severe poverty, malnutrition, and little to no access to health care. People who've seen both say there's more freedom, especially for women, in the slightly less conservative government side. But while the Saudi-led airstrikes that killed civilians on the Houthi-controlled cities have mostly stopped, this family now on the government-controlled side of the divide can't afford to move out of the range of Houthi guns. At least our family is safe over there, unlike us here. We can't even let our children play outside without fear that they will be shot by a sniper. Just the other day, we heard shots again. For now, they've pretty much given up hope on being reunited with their parents anytime soon. I really miss them. I miss going over to my parents' house and them coming here. My children have never seen their grandparents. They can't even do video calls. The internet here isn't good enough for that. But they try to talk on the phone every day, and this time, they let us listen in. Arif Abdullah says hello to his mother-in-law and then hands the phone to his wife. Hi, Mom, she says. Her mother replies, my heart, how are you? I wish I could be there. 
She gets choked up and her mother hears it. Are you crying? She asks. Bashar Ali pushes the phone back to her husband's hand and says she can't talk any longer. Her husband chats a bit more, promises his mother-in-law that he'll take good care of her daughter. Then they hang up. This is how we are. This is our life. I used to see my mom every day, and now I can only hear her voice. We have happy moments on the phone, too, but more than anything, the longing never goes away. This is what this war has done to us. It tore us apart. Since the peace talks started last year, there's been much less fighting. But Taiz remains divided, separating thousands of families. They won't be whole again unless the war ends and the city and Yemen is united. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Taiz, Yemen. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Summertime draws hundreds of millions of people to the country's most popular parks and recreation areas. A group in Colorado wants to make maps and signage for those sites more welcoming. Here's Aspen Public Radio's Caroline Yanez. At the Red Hill Recreation Area Trailhead in Carbondale, about 30 miles northwest of Aspen, the parking lot isn't full yet at 9 a.m., but it's getting there. Looking at the sagebrush and red rock formations, you nearly forget you're right next to the state highway. Nearly all of the hikers getting on and off the trail here have been white and spoken English. Christian Lamont with California-based Latino Outdoors says that's pretty common at trailheads across the country. And that can be a barrier to getting other folks outdoors. And so there is this perception that you don't belong because you don't see yourself. And that goes from the casual hiker to the park ranger. That's one obstacle. Another is a lack of recreation maps in Spanish, and trailhead signs are typically only in English. We tell people, like, come to this trail, and oftentimes they get there and they're like, now what? Do you feel welcome? Is this a place for you? Do you understand where you're going? Like, really important signage. But here at Red Hill, the signs on trail etiquette and the local ecosystem are in Spanish and English. That's great for Dini Roshin and her husband. Natives of Mexico, they've lived in Carbondale for more than 20 years. They live here, she says, and have the freedom to get out and enjoy the outdoors and fresh air. They'd love to be able to hike with others, but this is one of a handful of trailheads with signs in Spanish. Roshin says oftentimes their friends and other local Latinos don't feel comfortable navigating the trails with information only in English. Uh, 
This valley, with Aspen at one end, has a population that is close to 30% Latino. Lots of those folks work long hours in the area's resort economy, and Roshin says many of them don't have the time or energy to research recreation options on their own, which are mostly described in English. Local advocacy group Defiende Nuestra Tierra is the one that got the signs translated into Spanish at this trailhead. It also created a Spanish-language map of 19 areas on nearby public lands. El Camino Latino includes information on what you can do at each, like hiking, biking, camping, and picnicking, how difficult the trails are, and whether an area has bilingual signage. Y la intención es de, de esto es pues generar cultura de la caminata del that's Omar Sarabia, director of Defiende Nuestra Tierra. He says the intention is to create a culture of hiking, of the outdoors. Especially after COVID, he says now people can grab this map and say, OK, I have 16 options. Where can I go? There's still work to be done. Most trails around the valley don't have bilingual signage. And other hikers pointed out that future versions of El Camino Latino could include information about wildlife. But hikers like Tigini Groshin say the map and more trail signs in Spanish are an important step in helping her community feel like it belongs on Colorado's trails. For NPR News, I'm Caroline Yanez. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the new director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention talks about her vision for the agency as the nation prepares for surges in COVID and the flu this fall. Red Sox are working late again tonight. They've got a 9.40 start time against the Mariners in Seattle for the middle game of a three-game set. Sox are still two and a half games behind Toronto for the last wildcard spot. The Boston Planning and Development Agency is launching an initiative to redesign the streets near Fenway Park. The Fenway Transportation Action Plan will prepare several design concepts for the area between Kenmore Square and the ballpark. The goal is to expand walking, biking, and transit in the neighborhood and make it resilient to climate change. This is 90.9 WBUR. Look for clear, moonlit skies tonight. Another sunny day ahead tomorrow. 77 degrees at 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, working with New England artisans dedicated to using sustainable materials to craft furniture that lasts. Locations at circlefurniture.com. The Hollywood sign that towers over Los Angeles is 100 years old. I never take it for granted. (laughs) You know, driving up Beachwood, and right when it just appears, it gives me chills still. We dig into the magic of the iconic Hollywood sign with a dispatch from underneath its letters on the next morning edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Bed, Bath & Beyond is back from the dead. Sort of. Its website was relaunched today by the online retailer Overstock.com. What is going on? NPR's Alina Selyuk is our expert on this long saga of the chain where many of us used to shop, and she's with me now in the studio. Hi, Alina. Hello, hello. So is Bed, Bath & Beyond resurrected? Uh, Sorry, (laughs) Bed, Bath & Beyond is still gone. (laughs) 
The home goods giant went bankrupt in April. That's what's happened. So in this, it was this drawn out, painful collapse. And eventually bankruptcy court held basically a fire sale, or I guess more like an estate sale in this case, uh, selling Bed Bath & Beyond for parts. And one of those parts was the intellectual property, the website, the mobile app, the brand name itself. And all of this was bought by Overstock.com for $21 million, which frankly feels like a rounding error for a big company. And Overstock actually did it all in cash. Right. That sounds like a tiny amount of money, relatively speaking. So, Alina, if I go to bedbathandbeyond.com, am I shopping on Overstock? Am I still looking at the Bed Bath & Beyond old website? As of today, you're pretty much shopping on the new version of Overstock.com, which is kind of a fairly unusual choice. Overstock, the company that's very much alive, has decided to fully absorb the identity of Bed Bath & Beyond, which is dead. It's losing the Overstock branding and it's becoming this new online-only Bed Bath & Beyond. With a mixture of what it sells and what Bed Bath & Beyond used to sell? Pretty much. So... To abandon its own name, Overstock.com, feels dramatic. Why is the company doing that? It's all about that name recognition. Uh, People feel things when they hear the the name Bed Bath & Beyond. People used to love this chain before it fell apart. And Overstock wants that emotion. It's not as well known as many rivals, like Wayfair, for example. Today, I talked to Chief Executive Jonathan Johnson, and he says also people often assume that Overstock is like a liquidation store, which it's not. He also admitted that Overstock was self-aware enough to know that it's a bit of an embarrassing name to put on your wedding registry, (laughs) Bed Bath & Beyond does not. So basically, he argued both Bed Bath and Overstock were each carrying an albatross that combined maybe they can ditch. Here's Johnson. Overstock has always had a great business model, but kind of a boat anchor of a name. The Bed Bath and Beyond name is a great name, but it has an outdated business model that had become a boat anchor. We think that this combination will let us really sail sleekly, anchor-free into the future. And in the process, sell you bed, bath, and a ton more of the beyond, like tiles and refrigerators. Is Overstock taking over any of Bed, Bath, and Beyond's brick-and-mortar stores? Ah, yes. Here's what Johnson told me. We never say never to physical stores, but it's a never for now. Overstock did not buy any of the Bed, Bath & Beyond leases. Johnson called it an outdated business model with huge expenses, producing higher prices for shoppers, so no stores. You know that many listeners are wondering this, so I'm going to ask you for them. Will the new Bed, Bath & Beyond take those legendary old Big Blue coupons? Of course. So here's the thing. Overstock is historically a discount store. So when I asked Johnson this very question, he used the moment to plug the new Bed, Bath mobile app, which he says will have deals. Uh, But to say directly, I'm afraid Bed, Bath & Beyond coupons are done just like their original company. Truly did. That's NPR's Alina Selyuk. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. One of the greatest living Uyghur poets lives in Washington, D.C. To hear Hamut Izgil escaped from his native Xinjiang to the U.S. in 2018. At that time, rights groups say the Chinese government was detaining at least hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs and imprisoning writers that Izgil worked with. His new book about this experience, Waiting to be Arrested at Night, has just been published, and NPR's Emily Fang talked to him about the process of writing it. To remember is important, but for those who remember, like Tahir Hamut Izgil, the memories are a painful responsibility. 
I myself don't like to reread my own book. Every time I read part of it, I feel like I'm going through those events again. He's talking about his new memoir. The Book of Prose is a departure for the celebrated Uyghur poet and filmmaker. In truth, a book like this should never have had to be written. These events shouldn't have happened. But this oppression and injustice had occurred. I had a responsibility to record what happened. A responsibility because Izgil is one of the few Uyghur artists and intellectuals out of China and free to speak about the mass detention and cultural erasure of his people. Izgil made his career as a film director in the early 2000s when a brief and vibrant cultural scene exploded in Xinjiang. We spent a lot of time together uh, at uh, Ultrush. Ultrush is just kind of a in Uyghur, it's sort of a dinner party, usually with drinks that goes very late into the night. This is Joshua Freeman, the translator of Eskil's book. Freeman is a Uyghur language expert and historian, now at Taipei's Academia Sinica Research Institute. He met Eskil while living in Xinjiang. He explains how poetry is woven through everyday Uyghur life. A lot of Uyghur public discourse happens through poetry. Most Uyghurs are familiar with quite a bit of poetry. And even in conversation, people will sometimes use little bits of poetry, sort of idioms um, that rhyme or align from a poem that moved them. In 2015, Izgil was filming a television series outside the southern Uyghur city of Kashgar, very close to where Izgil had been imprisoned in a Chinese labor camp two decades earlier. Along the side of the road, I saw a newer prison, and my traveling companions explained that this was a woman's prison. Shaken, Izgil wrote this poem, entitled Kashgar Women's Prison, about the memory. The body of land was in pieces. The roads were stitching them together. Cold air was leading its kin down from the mountain. A sudden shiver went through me. Then, starting in 2017, the Chinese state put at least hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs into internment camps, which the Chinese state said were designed to re-educate Uyghurs to become more patriotic Mandarin Chinese-speaking citizens. Sadly, many of my closest friends hadn't had the opportunity to. And in writing my book, to some degree, I felt that I'm trying to speak on their behalf as well. Against all odds, Izgil and his family overcame a ban on Uyghurs getting passports and traveled to the U.S. on the pretext of seeking medical treatment in 2017. This was a chance at a new life, but at the cost of leaving their homeland and the people they loved behind. It was very hard to write poetry when I first came to the U.S. He did write this poem called Somewhere Else after arriving in the U.S. that is also included in his new book. What is it, from far away, from behind the domed water, that stayed with me, that came along with me? A weak vow written in the yellowing fog, audacity standing at an angle, or the layered dimness passed from hand to hand. This is a poem of longing for my loved ones and my friends and everybody I left behind. And, he says, the poem is about the longing he has for his homeland in exile. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from EBSCO, 
supporting open source technology and making open platforms possible for libraries of all sizes. Learn more at ebsco.com. From EasyCater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. From Policy Genius, committed to simplifying the process of getting life insurance by providing quotes from multiple companies side by side, including options that don't require a medical exam. Learn more at policygenius.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Could see more clouds over the next few hours, but we should end up with clearing skies tonight. We could use a blanket overnight. Should be a little bit chilly, about the upper 50s. And for tomorrow, sunshine's back again. Still breezy, still coolish and comfortable in the mid to upper 70s. Thursday should be another sunny day, a little bit warmer. Could break into the low 80s. Red Sox have another 9.40 start time tonight against the Mariners out in Seattle in the middle game of a three-game set. The Sox are still two and a half games behind Toronto in the last wild card spot. 77 degrees now in Boston at 459. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The new director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says it's vital that Americans view the agency as an asset to national security. We need to have a strong asset that can identify threats and respond to them quickly so that we can protect everyone's health. It's Tuesday, August 1st, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. More from Dr. Mandy Cohen on her vision for the CDC coming up. Science journalist and author Rebecca Skloot talks about Henrietta Lacks, whose family just settled with the Waltham biotech company, Thermo Fisher, which used her cancer cells without her consent. And author Ann Patchett on her latest novel, Tom Lake, which tackles family, maternal love, and the secrets a mother may choose not to share with her children. These stories and my unsung hero coming up. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A federal grand jury meeting in Washington considering potential charges against former President Donald Trump has left the courthouse for the day. The latest session coming is yet another federal indictment against Trump on top of two he is already facing may be imminent. This latest case focuses around potential charges from special counsel Jack Smith. The Trump sought to influence the 2020 election, including events around the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Trump already faces indictments regarding hush money payments in New York state and a classified documents case in Florida. France has begun evacuating its citizens out of Niger, where there's been ongoing conflict since last week when the president was removed in a coup. But the White House says they're still not planning for evacuations of U.S. citizens. And Pierre Stipe-Chevron has more. France and other European countries have started pulling their citizens out of Niger after there was violence targeting the French embassy there. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby says the White House is continuing to monitor the situation in Niger by the hour, but there are no plans to evacuate U.S. citizens. We don't have any indications of direct threats to U.S. citizens or to our facilities, and so 
uh, you know, we've not changed our posture with respect to our presence in uh, Niger at this time. Kirby says he urges authorities in Niger to make sure French and other nations evacuations are facilitated in an orderly way. And he encouraged U.S. citizens in Niger to make sure safety is their number one priority. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. Russia is accusing Ukraine of another drone attack against targets in Moscow and the areas surrounding the capital city. One of the drones hit the same building that was damaged in a similar strike over the weekend. An advisor to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky saying Moscow is, quote, getting used to a full-fledged war without confirming or denying any involvement on the part of Kyiv. Repeated drone strikes underscore Moscow's vulnerability as Russia's war against Ukraine enters its 18th month. X-Corp, the social media site formerly known as Twitter, and owner Elon Musk are suing a group of independent researchers who study hate speech. NPR's Bobby Allen reports Musk alleges his critics are engaged in a smear campaign. The Center for Countering Digital Hate is a nonprofit organization that publishes research on online hate. It has tracked an uptick in anti-LGBT rhetoric on the site formerly known as Twitter and a surge in climate misinformation since Elon Musk took over. Now Musk is suing the researchers for allegedly obtaining unauthorized access to the site's data. The suit also lodges an unsupported allegation that unnamed competitors of X and government entities are funding the research in an attempt to drive away the social media site's advertisers. Musk, a self-described free speech absolutist, has reinstated election deniers and white supremacists, yet he tends to have less tolerance for critics of him or his companies. Bobby Allen, NPR News. A mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 71 points. The Nasdaq closed down 62 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA is struggling to meet its hiring goals as it deals with high rates of attrition. That's according to General Manager Philip Eng. He told WBUR's Radio Boston today the T is working to address a critical workforce shortage with pay incentives and with faster onboarding of new employees. But Eng says it's still tough to fill vacant roles. We are hiring at a rate that we've never hired before. Uh, What we are challenged with, and this is not just the T, but every industry, even private sector, there is such strong competition for the talent that we need. The MBTA's 2024 budget includes funding for nearly 1,000 new jobs. This spring, an independent analysis of the T concluded the agency needed nearly 3,000 workers. The former head of the new Mission School in Hyde Park has agreed to plead guilty to misusing school funds. Federal prosecutors say 60-year-old Naya Wilson of Mattapan used nearly $40,000 of school funding to pay for two all-inclusive trips to Barbados for her and her friends. Wilson has agreed to pay back the money and will appear in Boston federal court at a later date. New Mission School is a pilot school within the Boston public school system that has autonomy over its budget and spending. Governor Maura Healey has signed into law a bill to extend horse racing in the state. Horse racing and simulcast can now continue through 2025. They otherwise would have been made illegal. Last night, legislators attached several last-minute line items to a bill the governor has approved, among them $180 million in aid for hospitals and $20 million in flood relief for farmers. Massachusetts Teachers Association says the state budget approved by the legislature makes some remarkable investments in education. The budget provides for in-state tuition for undocumented students and free community college for residents over the age of 25. But MTA President Max Page says there are additional expenses beyond tuition. If we only do that, we probably will not reach the students that we most want to reach, which are working-class students, students of color in our gateway cities, because true cost of attending a public college or university is mainly about room and board and transportation and even childcare. 
Page says free school meals for all Massachusetts public school students is also good for everyone. He says it helps ensure students are not hungry during class and helps close the equity gap. Low-income people who ride the T or take the bus could soon have cheaper fares. State lawmakers today earmarked $5 million to research the feasibility of implementing a cheaper fare system for low-income riders. That was included as part of the $56.2 billion fiscal year 24 budget on Governor Moore Healy's desk. The T already offers cheaper fares to groups including students and seniors. In the forecast, another gorgeous day today. Clouds this evening for the first part of the night anyway. And then they should move out and leave clear skies. Nice for gazing the big supermoon tonight. A bit cool, about 58 degrees. And then for tomorrow, sunshine again. Still breezy, still coolish in the mid to upper 70s. 77 degrees now in Boston at 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. The pandemic was a chance for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to do what it does best. Instead, that public health crisis left the CDC marred by political interference and confusing messaging, and the agency lost trust among Americans. Trust is clearly one issue on the mind of the agency's new director, Dr. Mandy Cohen. She mentioned the word about 50 times at a commencement speech she delivered earlier this year. Trust is a critical foundation for a healthy society. Trust in institutions such as government or media, or business, has been eroding in recent years. This lack of trust has led to polarization, to division. Dr. Cohen is an internist who led the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services during the pandemic. And as of last month, she is director of the CDC. She's with us now. Welcome, Dr. Cohen, to All Things Considered. Thank you, Sasha. Great to be here. On that issue of trust, Two years into the pandemic, there was a survey in which a quarter of the respondents said that they trusted the CDC not very much or not at all, a quarter. That's a big fraction for you to wrestle with. How do you plan to try to rebuild trust with people in the U.S.? Well, I think there's really three important steps. First is making sure that we are being transparent. We're having clear communications that are simple and accurate um, that folks can understand. So that's number one, transparency. And the second is making sure that we execute or have good performance in what the CDC is meant to do. Um, And so making sure that we are doing what we say we're going to do. And the third, very important, um, is about building relationships and partnership. We can't do it alone from the CDC. Beyond COVID, the CDC has so many issues it could focus on. Obesity, opioids, uh, rising numbers of STDs, shortage of public health workers, fighting conspiracy theories. What briefly would you say you would like your major direction or focus to be for the agency? Sure. There are many threats here. What you're going to see first um, focus for me is certainly to make sure we are ready for this fall and winter virus season. The good news is that we have more tools than ever before to fight COVID, flu, and RSV. We have vaccines, we have testing, we have treatment, but we need to use all those tools to make sure that folks are protecting their health. 
Before we move on to the fall focus of COVID, one more question about a different issue, gun violence. It's now the leading cause of death for children in the U.S. What do you think the CDC could do to reduce deaths and injuries in our country, if anything? So already the CDC does work and research um, in this space, and some of the data that you're quoting is is from the CDC. What we know is that, unfortunately, for example, suicides, half of suicides are related to uh, someone using a gun. Again, another place where we can intervene. I think there's a lot of creative work going on around the country. We need to lift up best practices of gun safety. Just like we make cars safer with seatbelts, there are ways for us to make guns safer. We don't want to see children lose their lives needlessly because of guns. And I think CDC can help bring the research and the evidence and the best practices to bear so that we know how to protect ourselves. Going back to COVID, because it is such a still an ongoing issue, do you know yet whether there will be a new COVID booster targeting the latest variant available in the fall? There are manufacturers of vaccines that are undergoing that process right now. The FDA experts, as well as experts here at CDC, still have their work to do. But yes, we anticipate there being a new COVID booster available probably in the early October timeframe. We know COVID is here with us. It's going to stay with us. Um, And sadly, it is still killing folks every single day. And that doesn't need to happen. We can use the vaccines, the testing, and the treatment that we have to protect folks. You know, as you know, we have a great deal of not just vaccine hesitancy and not just vaccine resistance, but vaccine hostility in our country. Do you have any thoughts for how the CDC can change people's minds on that? Well, I think that fundamentally goes back to to trust and how we can rebuild trust, not just in CDC, but in institutions, in media, in science overall. And I think that fundamentally underlies um, our ability to help folks understand what tools can and should be used to protect their health. You actually think you can make progress there? You think you could change minds? I think so. We saw that happen um, in North Carolina. Um, While I was serving uh, as Secretary of Health and Human Services, we actually saw trust go up in the department over the time we were responding to the COVID crisis. And we also saw a very high rate of vaccination. We actually saw more than 99% of uh, seniors over the age of 65 get vaccinated in in North Carolina, despite, you know, us being a a politically divided state. So I I think it can be done. And we're going to be focused on uh, building those bridges and building that trust so that folks um, take vaccines. But I'd also say that there are other tools. It's not just vaccines. Let's get if vaccine is not right for you, then testing and treatment um, is also a, a tool in our toolbox that we need to use. We saw during COVID how inadequate our public health system was. And yet in the recent debt ceiling deal, the CDC budget took cuts. How adequately resourced do you feel the CDC is now for whatever might come at it in the future? The CDC is an important national security asset. I think we understand that in a different way than ever before. We need to have a strong asset that can identify threats and respond to them quickly so that we can protect everyone's health. And in order to do that, just like we have the military that protects us, we need to invest in this tool that allows us to detect and to respond to those threats. Um, And so we need the resources to do it. Cuts are not going to allow us to do it. In fact, we need the right investments to make sure we have the data infrastructure and the workforce needed to be that national security asset that the country deserves. And final question. During COVID, you were a top state public health official. 
you really were in the thick of it at a very intense time for this country. Are there any lessons or any key lesson you learned from that that you'll try to apply to your federal job? Well, it was an honor to serve North Carolina through the COVID crisis. Um, And I think that we were able to be successful in our response effort because we put trust at the center. Um, We worked on being transparent. We worked on making sure that we delivered for the people of North Carolina and that we built relationships. We built them with um, historically underserved communities. We built them um, with our hospital system so that we executed as a team um, and did our work as a team. And importantly, we worked across the aisle. And this is where Congress and others are important partners in all of this. This is a team sport to protect folks' health. I think that's why North Carolina was successful. And I'm definitely going to bring those lessons learned here to the CDC. That is Dr. Mandy Cohen, the new director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Cohen, thank you for your time. Thank you, Sasha. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. And today's story comes from Susan Dickman. One afternoon in 2003, Susan was finishing up her workday when she spotted six missed calls from the hospital. Her dad, who had recently been diagnosed with leukemia, was there for a lung biopsy. I hopped on my bike and I raced over to the hospital. When I got there, I was really stressed out. I was feeling in panic mode because I knew it couldn't be good. I got into the elevator and I just started pressing buttons. I somehow couldn't remember what floor he was on. And suddenly um, from behind, I felt someone's hand on my shoulder and I didn't turn around. At first I felt sort of defensive, but then I relaxed into it, and that person gave me this, just sort of this very brief moment of calm in what I knew was probably going to be a pretty bad end of the day. Um, I got up to the floor that I needed to be on. I ran over to my father's room, and I was greeted by doctors who told me that he had passed away. When I thought about it later, I realized that probably the person who had put their hand on my back probably worked in the hospital, um, probably knew that there had been a code red called when my father stopped breathing. I think about that hand on my back pretty often, and I think, What a heroic, small, but heroic gesture that was to just reach out physically to somebody who was obviously struggling. And I I just feel like that person must have known what I was walking into when I got off that elevator. That's my unsung hero. That was Susan Dickman of Evanston, Illinois. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Angie. 
dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get their home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, a settlement in the case of Henrietta Lacks and a Waltham biotech company that used her cancer cells for research without consent. On Wall Street, the Dow grew by two-tenths of a percent for this first day in August. S&P and NASDAQ both lost ground. S&P fell about a quarter of a percent. The NASDAQ lost under a half percent. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. The time now is 5.19. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo. The Massachusetts sales tax-free weekend is August 12th. Shades, blinds, shutters, and drapery at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. Take WBUR along wherever you're headed this summer. Just tap to listen live and catch up on what's happening. Download or update the WBUR app now. Another gorgeous day. We should see some clouds uh, for the first part of the night tonight, and then they should move out, leaving a big, beautiful supermoon to brighten the sky tonight in the upper 50s overnight. Tomorrow, maybe Thursday, sunny skies both days. In the upper 70s tomorrow, the low 80s on Thursday. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations, including foundations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The writer, Ann Patchett, does not have children. This is by choice, and being a writer, she has written about her reasons. I have just enough energy to write, Patchett says. Keep up with the house, be a decent friend, a decent daughter and sister and wife. Part of not wanting children, she goes on, has always been the certainty that I didn't have the energy for it, and so I had to make a choice, the choice between children and writing. Patchett's new novel is about a woman named Laura, who is many things, but at the core, a mother. The book is titled Tom Lake, and Anne Patchett, I am so glad to speak with you again. I am so glad to speak with you, Mary Louise. So this book, your book, unfolds during that surreal summer of 2020, when so many grown-up kids were moving back home, moving back into their childhood bedrooms, and Laura, the mom and your narrator, she is loving having her 320-something daughters back home. Why put that mother-daughter relationship at the center of your story? Well, I know it was true for so many of my friends 
that they were saying, ah, oh, the pandemic, it's terrible, it's horrible. I'm so glad my kids are home. Yeah. And even if you don't have kids, I was so glad to not be running all over the place. I was glad my husband wasn't going to work every day. And so it was very easy for me to make the leap to imagine something good that came out of something so bad. Hmm. Well, I will share that as I was rereading that essay I quoted from, the essay you wrote about why you decided you didn't want to have kids, I stumbled on something that made me do a double take. In that essay, you describe a real-life farm that belonged to the editor of your first two books. And on that Mm. farm lived (laughs) three daughters named... Mm -hmm. Emily, Maisie, and Nell. Yeah. And for people who have not picked up your new book, the fictional daughters in Tom Lake are named Emily, Maisie, and Nell. So I knew that there would be three daughters, and I knew that the oldest one would have to be named Emily because the book circles the play Our Town, and Laura, when she was an actress, played Emily. So they would definitely name the first girl Emily. And then there was a woman, I guess, greatly admired named Nell Gifford, who had something called the Gifford Circus, and she was a tremendous artist, and I wanted to name the youngest daughter Nell. So I thought, well, if I have an Emily and I have a Nell, then of course I'm going to have a Maisie. You, and you can't leave out the, Maisie of the real daughter. Then the Todd sisters got their place, yes. <laughs> and how much of the fictional cherry farm in this book draws on that old farmhouse in a wide field, as you describe it, that you've actually visited when you were going to see your editor? Um, Really not at all, because I was going to real cherry farms in Traverse City, Michigan, to do my research about cherry farms in Traverse City, Michigan. I mean, the, the fruit belt, the cherry farms, the apple farms, in northern Michigan, that that is very specifically a world like no other. And what got you into it? Why the interest in cherries? <laughs> well, when I was on book tour for Bel Canto, my publicist told me that I had to go to a store in Petoskey, Michigan, called McLean and Eakin. I had to fly to Detroit in the morning, then fly to Traverse City on a tiny commuter plane, drive two hours to Petoskey, do an event, and then do the whole thing in reverse all in one day. I was oh. like, this is cruelty. <laughs> But it turns out that it was the best bookstore I'd ever been to. And I fell in love with the Norcross family. They own that bookstore. And I remember when I went back to the airport in Traverse City, Michigan, you could buy a cup full of fresh cherries. And I sat in the airport and ate cherries and thought, this is the best thing that's ever happened. I became friends with them. I went back to visit them all the time. And so suddenly I was I was hanging out with the cherry crowd. I can almost taste them. I can I can picture you in the airport gobbling them up. So we've established this is a book about a cherry farm. We've established it's a book about maternal love. It is also about romantic love and about great sex. <laughs> between Laura. Oh, Mary Louise. I'm going to go there. Here we go. This is Laura and a man she does not end up marrying and raising three daughters with. I want you to describe the force of nature that is Peter Duke. Peter Duke is funny and charming, smart, ambitious, in every sense, an actor 
and he is going to make it. There's a line in the book she says about Summerstock, we were all either on the way up or on the way out, and nobody really knew which way they were going, but Peter Duke was on the way up. And I don't know about you, but I dated some people in my 20s that I would never have wound up with, Uh but they were a lot of fun. Um, at the end of the book, the very end of the book, we learn that Laura has been keeping a secret, a big secret. She's been keeping it for many years from everyone she loves. And it is such a contrast with her quiet steadiness and with how close we see her to be with her husband, with her daughters. Why does she keep that secret? Do you know, it's interesting. I don't think of that as a secret. I think of that as private. What's the difference? A secret is something that you are pointedly not telling someone, but something that's private is just yours. It just belongs to you. And something happened to Laura, and it was her own business. She tells the reader, but she doesn't tell her husband, and she doesn't tell her girls, and that's her right. And Padgett, before I let you go... I want to ask about another book by another author, because you have long made a point of helping to raise up other writers. And as you go out on book tour for this book, for your book, Tom Lake, you're bringing along a debut novelist. I want you to give us the 30-second elevator pitch for Lindsay Lynch and her novel, Do Tell. Lindsay Lynch is the buyer at Parnassus Books. Parnassus Books, that's, that's your bookstore in Nashville. Go on. Do Tell is her first novel. It's about the golden age of Hollywood and follows the story of Edie O'Dare, who was an actress, second string, not making it, but a very good gossip columnist. And it's a bit of a thriller. It is wildly entertaining. It's the perfect book for summer. And it shows us that all the progress that we think we have made, we are actually fighting the same fights. Why do this? Why promote another writer's book on your book tour? It is so hard to be a first-time novelist. (laughs) And you want somebody to just give you a hand. She's written this amazing book. But if you can't get publicity for it, if you can't get reviews, if you can't get on the radio, no one's going to know. And so I've got that power. I can either use it for good or for evil. (laughs) And I'm going to use it for good. That is the great Anne Patchett talking about a couple of summer reads, including her new novel, Tom Lake. Anne Patchett, so good to talk to you. Thank you, Mary Louise. Have a wonderful summer. And you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox hope to snap a three-game losing streak tonight as they take on the Mariners in Seattle in the second of a three-game series. Brian Bayo takes the hill for Boston. Bryce Miller starts for Seattle. First pitch is at 9.40 Eastern time. An auspicious start to August after a beautiful day today. We should see some clouds collecting, but then they should move on out tonight, leaving a beautiful supermoon to brighten the sky. Temperatures in the upper 50s tonight. You may need a blanket tomorrow and maybe Thursday. Sunny skies, temperatures in the upper 70s tomorrow, then the low 80s on Thursday. We could have some rain clouds moving in for Friday. 77 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 530 and news headlines are coming up.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, with master's degrees, certificates, and endorsements to fit teachers' goals and lives, whether online or on campus. Online.merrimack.edu. From Turkey to Chile to Hungary, authoritarian leaders don't come to power on their own. They get there by striking bargains with political and economic elites, religious allies, and friendly media who say democracy isn't working and only the leader can restore order. In the U.S., are similar alliances being struck between conservative think tanks, media, and Donald Trump? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Russia is blaming Ukraine for drones that attacked the same building in central Moscow for the second time since Sunday. NPR's Joanna Kakissis tells us from Kyiv, Russia also claims its forces prevented a drone attack on civilian vessels in the Black Sea. A top advisor to Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says the Russian claims about drone attacks in the Black Sea quote, do not contain a shred of truth. Speaking to Reuters, Mikhailo Podolyak says Ukraine is not attacking and will not attack any civilian vessels or objects in the Black Sea. But Kyiv has not distanced itself from drone attacks in central Moscow. Podolyak tweeted that the war is moving to the territory of, quote, the authors of war. And Zelensky has said that it's fair that Russians feel the effects of the war their country started. Joanna Kakissis and PR News, Kiev. In Oklahoma, plans for the nation's first publicly funded Catholic charter school are being challenged in court by several groups. As Beth Wallace of member station KGOU tells us, Oklahoma's attorney general is not defending the case. Oklahoma Attorney General Gettner Drummond has long said he doesn't believe the establishment of St. Isidore of Seville Catholic Virtual Charter School is constitutional because of the school's intention to provide a religious education. And that is a problem for my office in that we're using you know, state taxpayer dollars to fund what would otherwise be a sectarian organization, which is in violation of Oklahoma's constitution. Drummond also tried to notify the statewide virtual charter school board before it voted in June that a new board member wasn't eligible to vote yet. But the vote went through and that new member was the deciding vote, meaning the state's approval of the school may not be legitimate. For NPR News in Tulsa, I'm Beth Wallace. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street today. The Dow gained 71 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. MBTA General Manager Philip Eng says the T's infrastructure problems run deeper than he thought when he first took over the agency. Here's WBUR's Rob Lane. Eng's been on the job about four months. He says since he took over, the T's had a better handle on subway track conditions and work crews are making progress on getting rid of slow zones. He tells WBUR's Radio Boston he came to Boston with the knowledge that he'd have his work cut out for him. I think the fact, though, that there was years and years of disinvestment, I think the work is more widespread across the system. But that doesn't mean we don't have a plan going forward. Before joining the MBTA, Eng worked at Transit Systems in New York and in the private sector. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. Boston's Election Commission has ruled that City Councilor Kendra Lara does indeed live in the district she represents. Commissioners met today to take up a residency challenge filed against Lara earlier this summer. Challengers argued that she did not live in Jamaica Plain as she claimed and as is required in order for her to represent District 6 on the council. Separately, Lara faces charges related to a car crash in June. Queen Bee is coming to Gillette Stadium tonight. Come and look at some crazy 
Beyonce will take the stage in Foxborough for the first time since 2018 for her Renaissance World Tour. Stadium gates open at 6 for the 8 o'clock show. Stadium officials are reminding fans that bags larger than a wristlet must be clear and cannot be larger than a gallon-sized Ziploc bag. A sold-out special event train is on its way to the stadium. And the tallest mountain in New England is known for its extreme weather, and now New Hampshire's Mount Washington has a new record. Meteorologist says a record 17.08 inches of rain fell on the mountain last month. The old record of just below 16.6 inches of rain was set in July 1996. The forecast is coming up. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. Some overcast skies into the evening, but eventually it should turn clear tonight and cooler, a little bit below 60. Tomorrow, another in our string of glorious summer days. Sunny, breezy, still in the 70s. Could break 80 on Thursday with more sunshine. 75 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is live special coverage from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Elsa Chang. Former President Trump is facing another indictment. And the one that we are learning about this afternoon could be the most significant and perilous of them all. We are still gathering specific details, but what we do know is that there are four counts related to the efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Trump was charged with conspiracy to defraud the United States, witness tampering, and conspiracy against the rights of citizens. Joining me now to talk through what we do know so far are NPR Justice Correspondent Kerry Johnson, White House Correspondent Franco Ordonez, Congressional Correspondent Claudia Grisales, and Investigative Correspondent Tom Drysback, all of them with me and Elsa here. Carrie, I want to start with you because these are perhaps the most serious set of allegations against former President Trump so far. Can you detail what we know about what he's being charged with? We know he's being charged with four federal felony crimes, Sasha, and we believe this indictment was handed up uh, just a short while ago at the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C., down the street from the United States Capitol, the scene of the crime on January 6th. Uh, Donald Trump has already faced indictment for uh, willful uh, retention of national security secrets at his Mar-a-Lago resort and also from a Manhattan district attorney over alleged hush money payments to the adult film actress Stormy Daniels. But this relates to the effort to stay in power, to cling to power after he lost the 2020 election. And as a result, it's it's really the most serious case one can imagine against a former president of the United States. 
And Carrie, from what we know now about this indictment that we are just learning about, are there other defendants, there, are there other people getting charged in addition to the former president? Elsa, this is what's so interesting. Donald J. Trump is the lone defendant in these uh, court papers, at least for now. We know the grand jury and the special counsel, Jack Smith, have been extremely active interviewing Trump's inner circle, interviewing even the former vice president of the United State, States, Mike Pence, and many lawyers for Donald Trump and others. So the work does not appear to be done, but these charges against Donald Trump certainly are a milestone in this investigation, which has spanned several years now. Uh, And Jack Smith, of course, the special counsel, was only appointed last winter to try to insulate this investigation from politics, in part because Donald Trump, of course, is running again for the White House in 2024. And Kerry, Trump himself recently wrote on Truth Social that he had received a letter from the special counsel, Jack Smith, notifying him that he was a target of a grand jury probe. Have we heard anything from Jack Smith today, or do we just have an unsealed indictment? Jack Smith has not made any public remarks today. After Jack Smith uh, filed a formal indictment in the Mar-a-Lago documents probe, he did give brief remarks from his office in Washington. That is a possibility at some point later this afternoon. Tom Dreisbach, we have you as well. Can you give us some sense about how these charges fit in with any broader investigations like that of January 6th and the Capitol riot that day? Well, we're still gathering information from the indictment, which was uh, just unsealed here in uh, Washington, (laughs) D.C. So uh, a few details yet to be worked out. But I would say that at this point, more than 1,100 people in total have been charged in connection with the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, the vast majority of them with charges related to entering, remaining in the Capitol, causing violence that day. However, one key charge that is referenced in this indictment against the former president that is referenced in hundreds of other and it's this exact same charge used in hundreds of other January 6th cases, is this charge obstruction of an official proceeding. More than 300 people who actually rioted at the Capitol or allegedly attempted to uh, obstruct the congressional certification uh, uh, of the electoral count that day Mm -hmm. have been charged with that crime. It basically means that you knowingly and corruptly attempted to stop that certification and block the certification of Joe Biden's win that day. And Tom, you have been looking into all these related investigations stemming from January 6th for like the last couple Mm -hmm. of years now. We have been looking for a potential indictment against the former president related to January 6th. How has the former president come up in the individual cases against these rioters? Like, are any of them or have any of them invoked Trump as kind of a defense? Well, Trump's name and Trump's actions in the run-up to the riot are constantly invoked in the court documents. For example, in messages that rioters sent to each other, uh, often in relation to that somewhat infamous now Will Be Wild tweet when Trump posted that people should come to D.C. on January 6th, quote, Will Be Wild. Many people saw that followed his call. And then in in another part of the, another phase of this investigation and in the actual legal process, people will sometimes raise a defense that, well, the commander in chief, the president himself told us to march to the Capitol and we followed his orders. We believed him. And how successful has that attempted defense been before judges? Yeah, as a legal defense, it has not won a lot of sympathy among the federal bench so far. Uh, Many judges say 
they acknowledge that they'd like to see some people uh, admit that they uh, had some responsibility for their actions on that day, on January 6th, but they're not really sympathetic to the idea that a president can unilaterally uh, suspend the law effectively by telling someone to go to the Capitol. And Franco Ordonez, what are you hearing, if anything, from Trump's legal team, his supporters, about what his legal strategy will be? Again, this is very new, but do we have any sense of how they'll react to this? Well, I mean, I can certainly say that they're already uh, claiming that Trump did nothing wrong. It is obviously uh, very new, but, you know, we can anticipate that he's going to have, you know, a very vigorous defense. And, you know, in the past, when it comes to some of these uh, accusations, such as, you know, fake electors, you know, he's argued that there was nothing criminal about preparing alternate electors, you know, on some of the fundraising, you know, they've talked about political speech. Um, You know, I find it very interesting, though, that, I mean, much of what uh, President Trump, uh, former President Trump is going to do is going to be from the court of public opinion. And we're already seeing that today. Um, He was the one who kind of first, you know, on social media spoke out about this, said that it was coming. Uh, And he has taken very strong and vigorous as he's, you know, want to do, calling it a nation in decline and attacking the special counsel on social media and, you know, calling it a fake indictment. Can we talk specifically about the language that we are seeing from the former president today? I'm reading directly from his statement. He says the lawlessness of these persecutions of President Trump and his supporters is reminiscent of Nazi Germany in the 1930s, the former Soviet Union, and other authoritarian dictatorial regimes. What about that language strikes you, Franco? in the kinds of images that the former president is trying to invoke with voters right now? I mean, it's very, very vivid images. You know, it was, just, it was interesting, you know, just kind of listening. I covered Trump for four years uh, when he was at the White House. You know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, this reminds me of, of, of some of that time. Uh, Trump uh, definitely can stoke a fire and he can, you know, he taps into uh, emotions uh, and the energy of his base, his Republican base. Um, and, you know, this is something that he does, and it's something that he's good at doing in regards to stoking his base. And this is, you know, as Tom was saying, you know, it doesn't necessarily work in the courts, but it absolutely uh, fires up his base. And you're seeing that now in the fact that despite all these scandals, this is now his third indictment, he is still leading in the polls and leading by a huge or a very large amount. So these legal troubles have been, in a way, political benefits to him. Certainly on the Republican side. Of course, a general election is an entirely different ballgame, but we are in the middle of primary season or the beginning of primary season. And these indictments have been very beneficial for uh, the former president as he kind of builds up his campaign. The other, his rivals, for example, have actually kind of been frozen, you know, in many cases. They have come to his defense um, instead of attacking him. He's used these indictments uh, to kind of been part of his core message. I mean, any other political candidate would 
would likely run away from these things, Absolutely. kind of bury them as deep as possible. But the former president has really embraced this. He seems to be reveling in it. And making it part of his case for the White House. Well, again, I just want to remind people who are just joining us now, we've been talking about the charges against former President Trump. This is the third indictment against the former president. This latest indictment was unsealed today. It's the second federal indictment against him. And it alleges that he has been charged on four counts, conspiracy to defraud the United States, witness tampering, attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, and conspiracy against the rights of citizens. Uh, I want to bring in our congressional correspondent, Claudia Grisales, now. Claudia, I know the news is just breaking as we speak. (laughs) What has been the response so far on Capitol Hill? Are you seeing things eking through your email inbox right now? Yes, already the email inbox is getting flooded. We're seeing a lot of members sending out messages. Mostly what we're seeing is House Republicans who are big supporters of the former president issuing statements of their concerns about this, their anger that this has happened. For example, Jim Jordan, this is the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, said that when you drain the swamp, quote, the swamp fights back. President Trump did nothing wrong. And this is right along the theme of what we're seeing from other Republicans in the House who have stood very much close to the president in terms of defending him. Another member, Florida member Matt Gates, said that Jack Smith's, quote, witch hunt case uh, should be defunded. And so this really goes into what Republicans have said was a politically driven investigation. They say that these charges are just proof of that. This indictment is just proof of that. And it's only going to fuel their fire when it comes to looking into Jack Smith, into the Biden administration, into any of the involved parties behind this case to see what they can tease out and try to discredit in terms of this investigation. And Carrie Johnson, can you give us a sense of of next steps? Because the special counsel, Jack Smith, has been investigating this for some time. So what unfolds from here? Sure. So we know that the former president, Donald Trump, has been summoned to appear at the federal courthouse in Washington on August 3rd for um, an initial appearance. He may or may not decide to show up in person. It is an option in this courthouse to show up via Zoom. So we'll have to see. But he's supposed to appear in court around 4 p.m. Eastern time on August 3rd. And we know that this case appears to have been assigned to a judge appointed to the bench by former President Barack Obama. Her name is Tanya Chutkin. Um, She's a former public defender and had worked at a couple of large law firms. She's been on the bench for a good number of years now. I saw her in the courthouse earlier today. There was no hint in her demeanor at all that she would be handed one of the most important cases we've seen in the last 30 or 40 years. And you know how other judges have responded is not necessarily going to dictate how she does. But can you give us some sense of how judges have generally responded to the defense that Trump has presented so far? Does it seem to be persuasive? Well, my understanding is that she presided over a case in which Trump was seeking um, to withhold documents from the House Select Committee investigating the events of January 6th. And she actually ruled in favor of Congress and was upheld by the appeals court. So she has some familiarity, at least with Donald Trump and the January 6th probe from that case alone. And Carrie, just for listeners who might be joining us, recap for us briefly again what happened today uh, in terms of the indictment handed down. 
grand jury in Washington, D.C., a federal grand jury here, has handed up an indictment of former President Donald Trump on four charges, conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, and finally, conspiracy against rights. Sasha, in the first paragraph of this indictment, is the following sentence. The defendant lost the 2020 presidential election. That's what this case is about, that Donald Trump knew he lost and instead fomented a series of actions that led to violence on January 6th. And Tom Dreisbach, I understand that you have one more thing to say about the Judge Chutkin. Yeah, Judge Tanya Chutkin, uh, not appointed to the court by former President Barack Obama. She has been seen, I will say, in the January 6th cases, which, of course, she's also presided over. Many of the rioters have come through her courtroom in trials or guilty pleas. Mm -hmm. She has been seen widely as one of the harsher sentencers when it comes to those cases up to this point. There's a little bit of variety among the judges in terms of how they approach these cases. Her position has been a, a bit more, a bit tougher than some of the other judges up to this point. I wonder if that's a sign for President or former President Trump's fate. Well, speaking of how past legal proceedings have gone, to the extent that they give us a clue about future legal proceedings, Kerry Johnson, to the extent that you can describe what has been former President Trump's legal strategy with respect to the previous two indictments, how would you describe that legal strategy? And does can we glean anything from those strategies uh, with respect to this current indictment? I think the most uh, relevant piece of information is the former president received a target letter from the Justice Department uh, around July 18th. And around that time, Donald Trump posted on social media that he uh, he'd done nothing wrong and then he had relied on his lawyers. So he may be setting up a defense in which he had relied on his wide team of attorneys um, to advise him on his public statements and actions before and after January 6th. Uh, The problem with that, of course, is that many of these attorneys are uh, potentially in trouble themselves. And as I pour over this 45-page indictment, I see a number of people who are uh, described as uh, co-conspirators. I see six of them and several at least, I'm not through reading the indictment yet, and several of them are attorneys. So uh, they have not been charged with wrongdoing by Jack Smith, the special counsel, yet, uh, but they are named as people who participated in this remarkable conspiracy that would have allowed Donald Trump to cling to power and overturn the results of the 2020 election. And so uh, those are people, of course, who have been in Trump's inner circle. They include people who were in senior positions at the Justice Department at the end of the Trump administration and others. And Claudia Grisales, uh, Trump is not the only person who's been in the crosshairs of prosecutors' investigations. There have been co-conspirators. Can you give us some sense of that? And also, Tom Drasbach, I know this is your area as well. Claudia and Tom, could you tell us about co-conspirators? Right. This is a list that we have seen especially come forward before the former select January 6th committee. We saw a lot of these key players uh facing subpoenas and um, as well as concerns that they were not responding to questions from the committee. This includes individuals such as Steve Bannon. Others who were high-profile figures here were Rudy Giuliani. These were the closest allies to the former president building up to the day of the attack and on the day of. Um, And this is what the committee, for their part, argued played a key role. These individuals in building up to that day in terms of assisting, uh, fueling misinformation 
information efforts, if you will, as well as taking part in efforts to try and discredit the 2020 presidential election. So these are going to be perhaps some familiar names, as you mentioned, that we've heard before, especially as the committee itself was able to put that more into the spotlight in terms of how these individuals Mm -hmm. played a role. And one of the folks that was referred by the January 6th Select Committee to the Justice Department was Attorney John Eastman. John Eastman is a right-wing law professor, or you should say former law professor. He used to be the dean of the Chapman University Law School here in Southern California, where I'm based. And he advised the Trump campaign, uh, particularly on a strategy legally to uh, use the vice president, to put a pressure on the vice president to block the certification of Joe Biden's win into the Electoral College on January 6th. In other words, to, quote, send it back to the states. This was the idea that the vice president would say there are too many allegations of fraud. We're going to send this back to the states. Many legal scholars said this would not be legal. There is simply no basis for the vice president's ceremonial role to be transformed into becoming the sole arbiter, essentially, of the 2020 election. Now, John Eastman, I've been covering, he's been uh, in state bar court here in California because the state bar wants to disbar him, take away his law license because they say he acted fundamentally dishonestly in his activities as an attorney. He also lost his position as the dean of a law school school here. And so it appears to be John Eastman who was referenced in this indictment as an unindicted co-conspirator as well. And a question for you, Carrie Johnson. Uh, fake electors, you've been writing, you've been covering that quite a bit. Tell us how this factors in. Sure. Uh, you know, this was a, this was an alleged plot to try to substitute electors, legitimate electors, in seven swing states uh, with slates of fake electors. And we know in Michigan, 16 people already have been charged by state authorities there as part of this alleged scheme. Now, this forms uh, somewhat of the backbone of this federal conspiracy indictment against former President Donald Trump, basically, that he and people surrounding him, his co-conspirators, knew uh, these um election, uh, these election claims uh, and fraud claims were bogus, and yet they advanced uh, these uh, these slates of electors in these swing states in a last-ditch bid to try to cling to power. And that has been viewed by lawyers as a a more clear and easy case to bring than one involving Donald Trump's rhetoric on January 6th itself. And Claudia Grisales, um, I know that you're going to be leaving our special coverage pretty soon, so yes. I want to make sure that you update on another piece of all of this. Can you just bring us up to date on the investigation into President Biden that has been led by House Republicans so far that has been playing out while President, former President Trump's legal troubles have been playing out? Right. Uh, as, as we were warned last year by House Republicans, as the January 6th committee was doing its work, they had planned to turn the tables on that investigation and more, especially zeroing in on the president and his administration. And we're definitely seeing that play out months later by multiple committees who are investigating different pieces of the Biden administration. A lot of it can uh, tie into his family, for example, his son, Hunter Biden. But there are other areas as well that they're focusing in. In on, and especially when we hear news like we do today, they ramp up their 
effort in terms of looking into Jack Smith and to the Justice Department, other players that they say could discredit this probe. And so we expect more of that probably in the coming weeks. Now, Congress is on recess right now. So in terms of doing anything in the immediate moment, in terms of hearings and and whatnot, that's not going to happen. But in terms of the investigations themselves, they are ramping up. We're hearing chatter of an impeachment inquiry. For example, Speaker Kevin McCarthy said that that was a consideration at this point because a lot of his members are demanding impeachment of the former president. So this is just going to fuel those kind of talks. And we'll see how the House Republicans land, where they will land when they return in September. You are listening to special coverage from NPR News. Um, Tom Dreisbach, you wanted to speak to one thing from the indictment right now. These are former President Trump's action during his actions during the riot on January 6th. One thing I had been wondering heading up into as we got indication that this indictment was coming was whether Trump's conduct on January 6th itself would be mentioned and would become a significant part of the government's allegations against the former president. And in fact, it becomes quite a big section that Trump's actions in the special counsel's telling in this indictment, he, he not only encouraged people through his speech and with false statements in the action, in the words of special counsel Jack Smith, but that during the actual riot itself and subsequent to the actual riot, he continued with co-conspirators who are unindicted to pressure Congress to delay and obstruct the certification of Joe Biden's win by calling lawmakers. It says in the indictment, on the evening of January 6th, the defendant and a co-conspirator attempted to exploit the violence and chaos at the Capitol by calling lawmakers to convince them based on knowingly false claims of fraud to delay the certification. That's Jack Smith's words here. This is live special coverage from NPR News. We are covering another indictment handed down today by President Trump. And we are expecting special counsel Jack Smith to make a statement shortly, probably a bit after six, about the charges that former President Trump is facing for his role in the attempts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. And with us in the studio, I'm here with Elsa Chang, as well as NPR Justice Correspondent Kerry Johnson, White House Correspondent Franco Ordonez, Congressional Correspondent Claudia Grisales, and Investigative Correspondent Tom Dreisbach. And we will also be covering what we expect to happen at 6, which is when Jack Smith is expected to take the podium. Franco, what are you hearing? You talked about this a bit. Great. Uh, we, Franco, when we come back, I want to hear a bit from you about more. You've talked about Trump legal strategy. You have talked about Trump, uh, how his how his how his base is reacting. But again, let's wait a little bit till after six, since we expect Jack Smith to come out soon. So stay with us for this live special coverage. This is NPR, and you are listening to special coverage from NPR News. As we've talked about, this is NPR live coverage. We are covering another indictment handed down today by President Trump. This happened of President Trump. This happened within about the past 30 minutes. We are expecting the special counsel, Jack Smith, to deliver a statement. We're going to be covering that live. We have with us Franco Ordonez, Claudia Grisales, Kerry Johnson, and Tom Dreisbach. And 
again, Franco, tell us a bit about what you are hearing from Trump's supporters, what reaction to this is, what it has been with his last indictment. Yeah, I mean, they've really been circling the wagons. I mean, we're already getting statements, uh, fundraising statements. Uh, surrogates are speaking out. For example, Carrie Lake, she's a Trump ally who ran and lost for governor, uh, running for governor of Arizona. She's one of many who have already come out. Uh, and what they're doing is kind of arguing. Uh, You're listening to 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Yeah, they're, they're what these surrogates are talking about. They're saying that this is kind of a distraction to kind of cover up some of the bad news that the Biden administration has been facing, particularly uh, with the legal trouble that Hunter Biden, Biden's son, is happening, having. Uh, you know, I've seen multiple tweets, multiple social media uh, posts about that. We're also hearing from uh, Trump's, um, uh, from his political uh, action committees, from uh, other members of Congress. I mean, this is, and we're also hearing more and more uh, from President Trump himself. What I anticipate. You know, he is going to go back on the campaign trail very soon. On this weekend, he is going to be uh, in South Carolina. And I anticipate he is going to uh, kind of reiterate some of the things that he has been talking in the past. Just this past weekend in Pennsylvania, for example, he kind of blasted Republican rivals for attacking him and said they should all be kind of pooling their money together so that he can fight uh, the Biden administration. And we're starting to see um, him doing more of that. Actually, uh, Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, his top rival, has actually already uh, tweeted out a statement uh, saying he had not read the indictment yet, but he was opposed to the weaponization of the government. Uh, so there's already backing even by his yeah. rivals. But can I ask you something, Franco? I mean, you've been talking a lot, including this morning on Morning Edition, about how each of the previous two indictments have given the former president a lift among voters, at least on the Republican side, right? The general election could right. be a whole other ballgame. But do you think January 6th is just a different thing? It's so much more in the forefront of people's minds. People across the United States were pretty startled with the graphic images that we saw as people rushed the U.S. Capitol. Do you think that this indictment, this, fir- this third indictment, will be different in the way that Republican voters respond and how much Trump can use this to be a campaign benefit. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that this was um, a, a terrible day for the country, a deadly day that millions of Americans watched live on television on replay multiple times. You know, and that's, as Carrie was saying earlier, this that's kind of the heart of this case, is that the accusations that Trump kind of undercut democracy and tried to stop the will of the people by changing the outcome of the election. I do think it will be harder to convince the public to ignore these charges. Let's remember GOP leaders, you know, in many cases blamed Trump at the time for creating the environment that led to this attack. That said, you know, things have changed. Perceptions have changed in dramatic fashion. And Trump is now the undisputed frontrunner of the Republican nomination despite this. Can we talk a little more about that nomination contest? How would you say that Trump's legal challenges up until now 
have affected the 2024 Republican field? Well, what Trump has done is he has used these indictments to feed a narrative that he has promoted that he is a victim of political persecution. He said that even today, questioning why the Trump Pardon me, questioning why the Department of Justice didn't bring these charges against him two and a half years ago. He said instead they're doing it now in the middle of his campaign. He's accusing the Biden administration for attacking him for using political interference to try to change the outcome of the 2024 election. And whether people like it or not, uh, you know, a lot of Americans, particularly Republican voters, agree with him that some of these cases um, are, you know, politically pursued. And one of the one of the examples that, you know, a Republican strategist told me just recently, and they, you know, point to the hush money scheme uh, that Trump was accused of, the first indictment in New York. Um, and they feel that that indictment would not have happened if it wasn't former President Donald Trump. They felt that it was very political. But because that case was done first, it kind of set the kind of the ground. It set the environment for for Trump to then proceed to say, well, this next one is political and this next one is political. And a lot of Republican voters agree with him. But as you noted, it is very different along the general election. Right. Well, let me ask you this in terms of logistics. Regardless of how voters feel about these particular indictments and how they reflect on the former president, just logistically speaking, the former president will still have to appear in court for various proceedings related to these now three indictments against him. How do you think that's going to affect the pacing and the nature of how we know Donald Trump to campaign. He loves his huge rallies, right? So what's going to happen to those rallies if he's in in and out of court? I mean, I think it's going to be, I mean, I think it's something that we're going to continue to see. There's no question that he loves his rallies. And I think he will use these appearances in court uh, to his advantage, at least to the best of his ability. Uh, Let's just remember that the uh, indictment in Miami and when he appeared in court, when he left court, he immediately immediately drove to one of the most popular Cuban restaurants uh, in Miami, Versailles, uh, yeah. Versailles mm-hmm. where he had essentially a, a rally. Um, it was very interesting. You know, he was speaking to Latino voters who have been very supportive, Latino voters in Florida uh, who have been very supportive uh, in using that. And then he went to Bedminster where he gave another speech. So he was really embracing this and making it part of his narrative. I anticipate that he will continue to do that. Uh, and I anticipate he'll continue to do that with this case as well. I mean, one more thing, if I may, I mean, in in case of that Versailles, I mean, his campaign said, look, look what we can do on our worst day. Our worst day is better than our rival's best days. Carrie, I understand we have at least one statement that has come in. Tell us about who's who's spoken up. Yeah, former Republican Congressman Will Hurd of Texas, a former CIA uh, employee, also running for the Republican nomination for the White House in 2024 against Donald Trump. Hurd says the election was not stolen, rigged, or fraudulent in 2020. He says 
Donald Trump's presidential bid now is driven by an attempt to stay out of prison and, quote, scam his supporters into footing his legal bills, referencing some new reports about Trump's uh, uh, PAC and and some high uh, legal payments it has made, both uh, to witnesses and others in Trump's inner circle who have been at the heart of this grand jury investigation. So so some tough language here from one of Donald Trump's Republican rivals, unclear whether it will make any difference in the race itself. And to recap, this is live special coverage from NPR News. We are expecting special counsel Jack Smith to make a statement shortly about the charges that former President Trump is new charges as of today facing for his role in his attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Tom Dreisbach, one of the allegations that the January 6th committee made was that Trump knew his fraud allegations were false, but he kept making them anyway. Does the indictment say anything about that and why that is important? Yeah, it actually quite spends quite a bit of time in this indictment, <clears throat> the special counsel's office, on this specific question. What did Trump know about the election and allegations of fraud that his campaign were making, and when did he know it? And in those pages, it's it's quite a long bulleted list that the, the special counsel's office offers of people who repeatedly told Trump that all of these fraud allegations were bogus and would not uh, overturn the election. And special counsel Jack Smith's office takes pains to note that these were not political opponents of the president. These were allies who would have a vested interest in actually winning the election. For example, Vice President Pence told him the fraud allegations would not determine the election. Senior leaders of the Justice Department, the Director of National Intelligence, officials with Department of Homeland Security, senior White House attorneys, senior staffers on the election campaign, state legislators and officials who are in the Republican Party and state and federal courts all told him that these fraud allegations were false. They would not change the outcome of the election, and he kept making them anyway. And the reason that's important in the context of this criminal indictment is it goes to Trump's criminal intent, as the special counsel uh, would characterize it, that he knew what he was doing was wrong, that he knew that these allegations were false, that he in fact did lose the election, but he tried using deceitful, dishonest, and corrupt means to hold on to power anyway. Thank you so much, Tom Dreisbach, for refreshing our memories as to the facts. Related to all of these events that have led to this latest federal indictment against the former president, former President Donald Trump. We are waiting um, moments from now. We are expecting special counsel Jack Smith to take the podium and to issue at least a brief verbal statement about this latest indictment. But while we are waiting for Jack Smith, let's talk about who Jack Smith is. Carrie Johnson, remind us who he is and how long he's been in this job. He's a former war crimes prosecutor, am I right? He is a former war crimes prosecutor, but before that, Elsa, I met him first in the Obama administration when the Justice Department had a problem after uh, the failed prosecution of former Senator, late Senator Ted Stevens of Alaska. Jack Smith was brought in from the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn to try to um, rewrite the ship at the Public Integrity Unit. That's the unit at Maine Justice that investigates uh, corruption among public officials. So he has a long history with that. He also went on to work um, at the War Crimes Tribunal in Europe for many years, and he was pressed back into service last November, a few days after former President Trump announced he was running for re-election in 2024 to the White House. Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed Jack Smith to provide an extra layer of insulation from politics to this investigation. And Smith operates uh, without day-to-day oversight from the Justice Department. 
Merrick Garland has said that uh, he is not interfering in any of Jack Smith's work. He's been pretty reticent, Jack Smith, so far. We only heard him talk for a couple of minutes after the Mar-a-Lago charges. Right. But we are waiting any minute for him to say something now about this January 6th I mean, indictment. prosecutors are not known for being loose-lipped. <laughs> but among even the tight-lipped prosecutors that you so well know, Carrie Johnson, is Jack Smith particularly quiet, someone who in particular does not like speaking directly to the public about legal proceedings and pending cases? You know, in this job, he's going to let his documents do the talking. There are moments to speak. Those moments, generally speaking, are in court. Uh, but I think he will reflect a bit of the historic and unprecedented nature of the of the case he has managed to build um, for, uh, for now. Uh, and we'll hear a little bit about that. Okay, and it sounds like that we are waiting. He's, his arrival is now imminent, but while we are still waiting, Franco Ordonez, White House correspondent, how would you say that Donald Trump is portraying Jack Smith as a figure? I mean, it's really fascinating listening to Kerry talk about Jack Smith and the care that the DOJ uh, went in picking him, especially selecting him in order to eliminate any perception, perception excuse me, of a partisan agenda. But Trump is painting Jack Smith as politically motivated uh, and out to get him. On social media, Trump has attacked him. He's attacked his family. He calls Jack Smith a radical right lunatic, a Trump hater, has blamed, said all his family and friends um, have hated him. In past cases, in the classified document cases, he accused uh, or raised the question of whether Jack Smith actually planted information in the boxes that were given to him. Of course, there was no indication of that, but I think it just goes to how former President Trump uh, is really trying to kind of color perceptions of Jack Smith as, um, you know, as the attacker, as the prosecutor, um, while he is kind of painting himself as a victim. And while Trump and his allies have been painting Jack Smith the ways that you have described, Kerry Johnson, this prosecutor has had a fair amount of security around him throughout all this. Is that correct? Yeah, unbelievable security from the U.S. Marshal Service. In fact, in the first six months of Jack Smith's tenure as special counsel, uh, the Justice Department estimates it was $1.9 million in security. We, we oh, have Jack Smith, the special counsel. We're going to go Judging to live. Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. The indictment was issued by a grand jury of citizens here in the District of Columbia, and it sets forth the crimes charged in detail. I encourage everyone to read it in full. The attack on our nation's capital on January 6, 2021, was an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy. It's described in the indictment it was fueled by lies, lies by the defendant targeted at obstructing a bedrock function of the U.S. government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. The men and women of law enforcement who defended the U.S. Capitol on January 6th are heroes. They are patriots and they are the very best of us. They did not just defend a building or the people sheltering in it. They put their lives in the line to defend who we are as a country and as a people. They defended the very institutions and principles that define the United States. 
Since the attack on our capital, the Department of Justice has remained committed to ensuring accountability for those criminally responsible for what happened that day. This case is brought consistent with that commitment, and our investigation of other individuals continues. In this case, my office will seek a speedy trial so that our evidence can be tested in court and judged by a jury of citizens. In the meantime, I must emphasize that the indictment is only an allegation and that the defendant must be presumed innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. I would like to thank the members of the Federal Bureau of Investigation who are working on this investigation with my office, as well as the many career prosecutors and law enforcement agents from around the country who have worked on previous January 6th investigations. These women and men are public servants of the very highest order, and it is a privilege to work alongside them. Thank you. This is NPR live special coverage. That was the special counsel Jack Smith we just heard talking about the four charges that came down today, handed up about from against former President Trump for his role in the attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 election. A very short statement. And we have with us Kerry Johnson, Tom Dreisbach, and Franco Ordonez. Kerry, again, very short. Uh, could you tell us what stood out to you from what we just heard from the special counsel, Jack Smith? What really stood out to me was uh, the seriousness with which he described the conduct on January 6th as an assault on the Capitol, an unprecedented assault on the seat of democracy that Jack Smith says was fueled by Donald Trump's lies and that it, it basically disrupted the peaceful transfer of power. And Jack Smith was also quite strong when he discussed the men and women of law enforcement who defended the Capitol that day. Sasha, we've, uh, we've heard and seen in federal court any number of people accused of uh, beating police officers that day with their fists, with spray, with flagpoles, uh, people who possessed weapons on the grounds of the Capitol that day. We know that over 140 law enforcement officers were injured. Some had to retire on disability. Uh, about five law enforcement officers died by suicide in the days that followed. Um, and so it, it's a, of the utmost seriousness, Jack Smith said. He also said uh, that his investigation continues as to other individuals who are not Donald Trump and that he would request a speedy trial for Donald Trump. But Sasha, that's going to be really hard because Trump already has two trials scheduled for next year in the criminal setting, one in New York in March and one in Florida in May. And Franco, how are Trump and his supporters portraying Jack Smith, the special counsel, on these charges? Well, I think even on these charges, like in past charges, they are he they are uh, painting him as politically motivated, uh, as someone who is driven by politics, who is you know doing the bidding of the Biden administration in the midst of a campaign of trying to hurt uh, the former president. And I think that's also why you know you heard uh, specifically from Jack Smith just now defending uh, the work of the Department of Justice, the work that he is doing, speaking of their integrity. Um, it just reminded me of his comments after uh, the past indictment, where he seems to be countering uh, these accusations by Trump and his surrogates that this is politically motivated. 
Carrie Johnson, I have a question for you. We said at the beginning of this special coverage that this third indictment could be the most important and most perilous of all three indictments now against former President Trump. Can you explain why that is beyond the fact that the images, what happened on January 6th, was it's so indelibly imprinted on so many people's minds in this country, but legally speaking, the consequences that could be facing President, former President Trump at this point, why is this indictment probably the most important one? Well, you know, some of these conspiracy uh, charges carry very significant criminal penalties if the former president is eventually convicted. And I really should mention that juries in Washington, D.C., federal court juries here, have been uh, quite uh, diligent in their responsibilities. They've had a lot of January 6th related cases, none quite as important or uh, unusual as this one. Uh, But juries here have been, uh, by and large, convicting defendants, including members of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, those far-right groups of seditious conspiracy. So juries have uh, demonstrated an ability to handle some very complicated cases that drag on for weeks, if not months, and ultimately to uh, to render uh, judgments. And I think that could be bad news for the former president um, based, on, uh, based on the idea that that, um, you know, there there's, seems to be a lot of evidence referenced in this indictment. Obviously, the former president's going to challenge that in court, but we know so many people, so many members of his inner circle, people in the White House, people in the Justice Department, people who worked on his earlier campaigns, his own former vice president, all of them were called to testify against him in this grand jury. And we're going to find out a lot more as this case develops yeah. in the courtroom. Okay, I'm going to take this opportunity now to bring in a a new panelist uh, during this special coverage. We have Odette Youssef, the NPR domestic extremism correspondent. And Odette, we've talked about the far right, the presence of the far right on January 6th. I mean, how much does the far right still look like the way it did on January 6th? Yeah, also, I mean, think back to January 6th, right, and and what we saw at the Capitol that day. We saw MAGA red hats. We saw certain groups like the Proud Boys. We saw Oath Keepers wearing, you know, tactical gear. Um, There were people, (laughs) you know, that were QAnon, conspiracy theory believers. Um, And by the time January 6th rolled around, we saw some of these people organizing quite openly on social media for violence, right? Uh, things are very different now. Um, we haven't seen that kind of organized political violence at the national level. We haven't seen that kind of public organizing uh, for mobilizations. Um, instead, also, I'd say that what we've seen, and this is what many extremer, extremism researchers have been saying now for, for a couple of years, is that we've seen a mass radicalization on the right. You know, we still have a substantial portion of Republicans who think that the election was stolen despite no evidence. Uh, We see many on the right embracing conspiracy theories like uh, the Great Replacement Theory, which uh, baselessly claims that immigrants are being brought into the U.S. to replace uh, U.S. citizens. Um, And many on the right even think that January 6th was a so-called false flag operation that was staged by federal authorities. Um, And we can talk about a number of reasons why, you know, we've arrived at this point, but I think one of the most important ones is that we've seen a change in tactic on the far right. You know, instead of organizing activity at a national level like we saw on January 6th, they've gone local, Interesting. you know, focusing well, on school boards and libraries and local government. If that's the case, if you see more activity on the local level, how much is former President Trump still the glue that appears to bind the far right? Is he still the glue? 
No, he's not. You know, he does have a loyal following, of course, but after January 6th, um, and especially as he's increasingly become mired in these sort of legal troubles, we've seen the right rally around other causes. And lately, the most successful of those has been around the cause of curtailing LGBTQ rights. You know, this is an issue, Elsa, that's proved incredibly potent in drawing people across the right from uh, from extremists to some Christian conservatives to parental rights activists, you name it. Um, and they've marshaled disinformation and fear to bring more people into their cause and add a note of urgency to it. And what's followed has been violence. Well, let's talk about potential violence. Is there a chance, Odette, that you think we'll see people take to the streets, given this news of a third indictment against the former president, one that specifically connects to the activities on January 6th? Should we be bracing ourselves? So, you know, I I don't have a crystal ball, um, but, you know, what we have seen um, with with each of these um, cases that have have come up with with the former president is that people really haven't taken to the streets in any way like what we saw on January 6th. Um, And the reason for this is that there's a real paranoia now on the far right. You know, anytime anyone calls for a gathering to protest or to rally, you know, some other folks immediately accuse them of being undercover feds trying to stage a false flag operation to get, you know, to get Trump supporters arrested. Um, so, you know, I think the, the concern now really is more about um, the potential for stochastic violence, you know, hmm. the Explain online... that word, stochastic. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we have um, influential voices on the right um, really stirring up um, emotions around um, these cases involving the former president. And we have a lot of discussion on these far right spaces online of violence against uh, against the people that may be involved in these cases. And so the concern is that, you know, a person will take it upon themselves to commit an act of violence. And we did see that a year ago when a man, you know, after um, Mar-a-Lago was was searched, uh, we saw a man uh, go to the Cincinnati field office of the FBI and fire a nail gun. So that's really the concern now. Yeah. Well, before I turn to the rest of the panelists, Odette, there have been a couple of successful prosecutions of far-right figures for January 6th. In particular, we've seen connections for members of the far-right groups, the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. What has happened to those groups since those convictions? You know, the Proud Boys were among those who pivoted to that local strategy that I mentioned earlier, and that's really paid off for that group. Um, They've been documented alongside individuals that are affiliated with other groups now called um, Moms for Liberty, for example, which is a parental rights uh, group. Um, And they've really sort of had some success normalizing their appearance in local settings. Um, But the Oath Keepers basically has faded away, and that's more indicative of what's happened with, you know, the so-called militia movement in the last year. I think the thing that's really concerning now is that we're starting to see groups that are more explicit in their embrace of neo-Nazi white nationalist ideologies emboldened to be more public with their activities. And among those are, you know, neo-Nazi active clubs, for example, which are cells of young neo-Nazi men training for physical combat against their ideological enemies. Tom Drasbach, you have done so much good coverage of the January 6th uh 
investigations and prosecutions. And I know you've only had under an hour to read this indictment. <laughs> but, but as you read it, could you give us some sense of your thoughts about the scope of the indictment? Yeah, what, what has really struck me about this 45-page indictment that the special counsel has brought is, is, is that scope, the broad nature of this. You could have imagined a much more narrowly tailored indictment that looks at specific allegations, such as related to the fake elector scheme and allegations that people made false statements to the National Archives or to Congress in the scope of that. But in this case, this really alleges a broad multi-state conspiracy that went from Election Day 2020 up until and during and even after January 6th in the Capitol breach that day. This is a broad indictment that goes at several different figures and references them. Six unindicted co-conspirators are referenced in this indictment. Many, many players are, are referenced here throughout. And so what is striking to me is that this is not narrow. This is quite a broad indictment that goes to all of the president's conduct after Election Day 2020 and his attempt to stay in power. And Kerry Johnson, as we've been saying, this is perhaps the most serious set of charges against former President Trump. Could you explain what you consider the significance of this case in the context of all the three indictments he's facing and the one we're still expecting out of Georgia? Sure. Well, there's one in New York by the Manhattan District Attorney over alleged hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. There's another in federal court in Florida over uh, the alleged willful retention of classified documents in Trump's uh, Mar-a-Lago resort, including such places as the ballroom and the bathroom. And then finally, Sasha, there's this one, which is really at its core a conspiracy to cling to power and to exploit um, rioters and their violence on January 6th in an effort to keep Donald Trump in the White House. And that seems to me about as serious as it gets. I'd also say for, for all the criticism of the Justice Department and its pace here, and some people thought this day would never come, we've heard from Jack Smith and Attorney General Merrick Garland that no one person is above the law, and we now have Donald Trump charged in connection with this alleged big lie scheme. Uh, Franco, very quickly, any final thought from you? Uh, you know, I'm just going to be very interested to see the next, how Trump's Republican rivals uh, face this, and will they, uh, you know, take a little bit more responsibility and maybe attack him a little bit. A lot more of that in weeks to come. That is it for our live special coverage. Again, former President Donald Trump was indicted today by a federal grand jury. Special counsel Jack Smith just made a statement. Trump faces four counts related to the efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. In a moment, we will return to our regular programming and we'll have much more analysis on our air and across all of our other platforms. You can hear more coverage on All Things Consider, where Sasha and I are co-hosting, and also tomorrow on Morning Edition on this station. And you can, of course, check out NPR's live blog at npr.org. You've been listening to live special coverage from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. More on All Things Considered coming up next. And when you wake up tomorrow, tune in to WBUR to hear reaction to the Trump indictment today. Should turn clear overnight tonight and cooler, a little below 60 degrees. Tomorrow, another in our string of glorious summer days, sunny, breezy, still in the 70s. 
turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by J-Arts with Be the Change, a public art and social justice installation. Opens tomorrow in the Fenway. Discover where art meets activism at jartsboston.org.